Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is with three people working at OpenAI who want to discuss how AI development teams can best coordinate to avoid racing to deploy AI too quickly and what role, if any, government ought to play in this. But before that, I just wanted to quickly pull in my colleague, Neil Bauman, to say hi and talk about an article that he's written. So, uh, hey, Neil. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. Ah, my pleasure. So this episode is probably going to be of interest to most listeners, even if they can't see themselves actually working on something to do with AI themselves. But for those among the listeners who can, I really wanted to make sure that they know about your new article called The Case for Building Expertise to Work on US AI Policy and How to Do It. What might readers uh, find in there if they, if they click through uh, the, the, the link in the show notes to that article that you've written? Yeah, so AI policy is an issue that's been discussed here on the podcast a couple of times and a whole bunch by 80,000 hours. But surprisingly often, I get people coming to me and asking, one, like, why? I don't really get why the US government is such an important place to go work if what you want to do is improve the long-term outcomes of AI. And B, like, how do you even get into these careers? And so I wrote this uh, guide or uh, article to essentially make the case for why I think building expertise to go work on US AI policy is really important. And we sort of give a bunch of arguments for, as well as a bunch of arguments against why this might not be a good idea, why it's sort of maybe a risky career move. And then go into this question of like, how do you even get into these careers? So just uh, a bunch of master's programs, a bunch of jobs that you can take early on um, when you're starting out. But ultimately what this article is doing is saying that people with the right combination of technical expertise, uh, the sort of social skills and willingness to work in multi-stakeholder policy environments, and uh, this sort of yeah, ability and willingness to move in slow-moving bureaucracies, and you're excited to work on shaping the future of AI policy, then this might be one of the most impactful things that you can do with your career over the coming decade. Cool. Well, uh, I really liked it. I thought you did a very, very th- thorough job with it. Yeah, it took a little while to finish. Uh, I was very uh, fortunate to get comments from um, a whole bunch of people from across the community who sort of uh, fed into this. And it was, yeah, also lucky to have it promoted by um, a bunch of people in the U.S. Department of Defense. So, yeah, we're sort of pleased with how it came out, but it certainly did take a while. Okay, uh, thanks for that, Neil. Uh, I'll bring you back on at the end of the show uh, with Michelle Hutchinson to offer some quick reactions to the interview. But before that, we actually have to have the interview. So without further ado, here's Amanda, Miles and Jack from OpenAI. Today, I'm speaking with Amanda Askell, Miles Brundage and Jack Clark. Since her last appearance on the podcast last September, Amanda has joined OpenAI as a research scientist working on AI policy. She completed a PhD in philosophy at NYU, uh, one of the world's top philosophy grad schools, doing her thesis focused on infinite ethics, which we've uh, talked about on a previous episode. Before that, she did a BPhil at Oxford University, and she blogs at rationalreflection.net. Miles had the honor of being the first ever guest on the podcast, uh, and now also works as a research scientist on OpenAI's policy team. He was previously a research fellow at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, where he remains a research associate, and he's also a PhD candidate in Human and Social Dimensions of Science and Technology at Arizona State University. Finally, uh, Jack works as the policy director at OpenAI. He was previously the world's only neural net reporter working for Bloomberg, and is the creator of the weekly newsletter Import AI, which is read by a large fraction of the AI industry. Uh, and until today, he had never, in fact, been a guest on the 80,000 Hours podcast, not even once. Uh, thanks for coming on the show again, Amanda. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for coming on the uh, show again, Miles. Great to be here. Thanks. And Jack, uh, welcome on for the first time. Thank you very much. 
I hope to getting to uh, talking about you know, how people can actually pursue careers in AI policy uh, like, like you all are, and also some of the latest developments in the field, which are, are pretty interesting. Uh, but first, can each of you just quickly tell me, uh, like, what are, you, what are you guys working on and uh, why do you think it's really important work? Uh, maybe Amanda first. Yeah, so I've been focusing recently on this notion of AI development races between different developers. And I think that like a lot of the dialogue around that has focused on like these highly adversarial race scenarios, you know, where people are talking about things like arms races. Um, And I basically think that the situation is kind of more complex than that. And it's important that we acknowledge that even if there's a development race, it doesn't have to be like highly adversarial. Um, So that's my main focus. Um, And as like a kind of uh, another area that I'm thinking about a lot is the kind of intersection between policy questions and questions in safety. Yeah, so uh, there are a couple things that I'm thinking about these days, broadly in the bucket of making sure that AI goes well and that OpenAI uh, does what it can to set the right sorts of norms around AI development. Today, we had a big uh, blog post, which was a step in this direction in the context of disclosure norms and publishing norms, uh, where we were very transparent about our concerns around the malicious use of a certain technology. And uh, in addition to that, I'm also thinking about uh, some of the same issues Amanda mentioned around cooperation and uh, what the sort of uh, technical and social mechanisms uh, are that we might draw on to build trust between different countries and companies. And I spend a good chunk of my time thinking about the sorts of interventions that Amanda and Miles and other members of the team can make, which will be most effective. And so I do that by spending a lot of time in Washington every month, what I call the happiest place on earth. And I also go and spend time in other major cities close to close to other sort of reasonably large governments as well. I think that one of the challenges for AI policy is being able to do significant research that deals with many of the open questions in this domain, which are also well calibrated to what governments are trying to think about and trying to actively work on today. And ideally trying to make sure that that research is aligned with the sorts of bills, legislation or projects that governments are thinking about doing in this domain so we can work collaboratively. Maybe, uh, Jack, we've already had two episodes broadly describing the, the problem of uh, AI policy, one with Miles, one with uh, Alan Defoe. But do you want to just uh, quickly, for people who haven't heard that, uh, describe like what is the issue with like artificial intelligence and like how we ought to approach it as a society and as uh, I guess as a government? So the good thing about AI is that it applies everywhere. And this is also the extremely bad thing about AI for a policy challenge, because AI's effect on policy is happening in two major areas. One, it's happening as an augmentation of existing policy problems. So you think about fairness in the criminal justice system. Well, that's an area where AI is today having an effect and accentuating the sort of sharp edges of those problems. Similarly, you know, AI and insurance with regard to discrimination, debates about inequality are influenced by the effects of AI on actors in the economic marketplace, and so on and so forth. And then at a meta level, the question of AI policy to me is, what new questions need to be worked on, or what existing policy things need to be dramatically reframed? So if you think about issues like controls on AI, in the same way that you would think about controls on previous transformative technologies like nuclear technology or or so on. It's clear that AI has very different rules and very different traits, which mean that the challenge there is different. So a lot of AI policy right now is about discovering those areas where there needs to be new work on defining the questions so we can go and 
change things. The last episode we had on this topic I recorded about uh, a year ago, maybe even a bit longer than that. And it's a like field that's changing incredibly fast because it kind of really only emerged in its own right a few years ago. Uh, maybe maybe could each of you in turn like describe what you think is uh, what are the most significant changes have been over, over the last year or two? Sure. So definitely there's been a lot of mainstreaming of uh, AI in public discourse and AI policy and AI ethics as areas of discussion within the research community. I would say that, you know, that's sort of been continuous with what happened in previous years. So, you know, in around 2015, there was the first FLI conference and the open letter on robust and beneficial AI. So uh, a lot of these ideas around sort of social responsibility in the AI community have been percolating for a while, but they've been more mainstream in terms of conferences and sort of researcher conversations. uh, And in the case of our blog post today, sort of concrete decisions uh, taken by AI labs as these issues have gotten more sort of clearly connected to the real world and you know AI has gotten more impactful. I'd say from my perspective that the politicization of AI, the, the realization among people taking part in AI that it is a political technology that has political effects has been very significant. We've seen that in work by employees at AI organizations like Google Amazon and Microsoft to push back on things like AI being used in drones in the case of Google or AI and facial recognition in the case of Microsoft and Amazon. And that's happened alongside politicians realizing AI is important and is something they should legislate about. So you have uh, Ben Sass, who's a Republican senator here in America, has submitted a bill called the Deep Fakes Prohibition Act, which is about stopping people using synthetic images for bad purposes. I think that the fact AI has arrived as a cause of legislative concern at the same time that AI employees and practitioners are realizing that they are political agents in this regard and have the ability to condition the legislative conversation is quite significant. And I expect that next year and the year after, we're going to see very significant changes, especially among Western countries, as they realize that there's a unique political dynamic at play here that means that it's not just like a normal industry in your country, it's something different. I think some of the biggest changes I've seen have mainly been in a move from a pure problem framing to something more like uh, focus on uh, like a greater number of potential solutions and mechanisms for solving those problems, which I think is like a very good change to see. Um, So previously, I think there's been a lot of pessimism around um, AI development among some people. And now we're seeing uh, really important ideas get out there, like the idea of like greater collaboration and cooperation, um, ways in which we can just uh, ensure that the right amount of resources go into things like AI safety work and ensuring that systems are safe and beneficial. I think that one good thing is that there's perhaps a little bit more optimism as a result of the fact that we're now focusing more on mechanisms and solutions than just on um, trying to identify the key problems. Yeah, I do, do you want to elaborate on that. Has there been a change in people's sense of what the most important questions in, in this field are and what, what people are, are looking into in more detail? I've definitely noticed a growing familiarity slash agreement with the idea that there's some sort of collective action problem here. Uh, you know, not necessarily convergence on a very concrete framing, but I think some of the ideas in, for example, the book Superintelligence and more recently sort of uh, more prosaic versions of these arms race concerns in the autonomous weapons and other contexts have caused people to think about, oh, maybe we need to find a way to coordinate. But that is you know, not a very crisp consensus and views vary a lot on exactly what the prospects are for coordination. 
So here in America, in 2016, there was a presidential election, and it led to us having the current administration. And that generated a lot of interest from AI practitioners about how AI technology is used, because suddenly you had an administration came in, which had political goals that frequently conflict with the political values of AI researchers themselves. And I think that that has been in a way helpful because it's helped frame the AI problem of multi-use or omni-use or dual-use technology away from purely military terms and into this broader context of, oh, if we build AI stuff, other people can apply it in different ways. Who are these people? How might they apply it? And what steps can we as developers take to ensure that if they do get the chance to apply this stuff, they apply it in a good context? I mean, that that context led to OpenAI adopting a different release strategy with some language AI work, which we have been talking about to you today. And I think that it's going to change how most AI developers approach these questions of release in the future, which I'm excited to see. So what kinds of things are people spending most of their time working on these days? And I think a year or two ago, people were saying that AI strategy and policy was kind of in a disentanglement phase where like what we really needed was like people who could figure out like what are the most important questions to, to be focusing on. And that, that's kind of a skill in itself. Do you think we're, we're still in the disentanglement phase uh, if, if we ever were? Uh, and, or like has it become clearer like exactly what we need to, be, need to be doing? I think opinions vary on that question. I personally am sort of bullish on a particular framing of the problem around uh, sort of collective action and trust and think that there are pretty tangible research problems in that area. But others might sort of uh, disagree with that framing or find it ill-specified or have a totally different problem framing. So I think there's both further disentangling going on and sort of more granular research agendas for particular framings. Yeah, I think one thing worth noting here is that there's kind of not just one central problem, but a collection of problems. And so you can have different rates of progress on each of them. So some questions might be things like, how do you distribute the benefits of like AI going into the future? Which is a bit of a different question from things like, how do you prevent um, like adversarialism between different AI developers. And I think that some of those are more developed than others. I would probably class myself more on the disentangling end of things. But I think this is probably because I have a kind of deep love of conceptual clarity. And when you get a new research area like this, you're having to both discover like what the different problems are, what the solution space is, what even the relevant concepts are to use here. Um, and so I think that that has been, in fact, disentangled in some areas more than others, but there's still like a lot of work to be done there. Just uh, doubling down on what Miles and Amanda said, there are definitely known problems now that there's convergence on working on, like the problem of multiple AI organizations needing to be able to collaborate increasingly closely with each other and exchange information. I think that everyone agrees that that's a shared problem of concern now and deserves its own investigation. So I think that it's positive that we have some known things to work on. But the issue with a lot of this AI policy stuff is that over time, the number of actors is sort of changing, which conditions the types of questions and that the level of entanglement or disentanglement is conditioned by the growth in the field over time. So actually, every month, you'll see a new statement about AI from a government or a billionaire or a company. And you sort of have to look at your sheet of paper on which we have our grand AI policy plan, and you need to slightly redraw it to account for those different actors in the space. How much is the kind of field of AI policy still in the phase of 
just doing research and figuring out like uh, what what should be done versus like actually trying to like change things in the real real world like try to get organizations to change their, their behavior or get the government to, to implement particular policies I would say that there are like multiple worlds of AI policy and multiple senses of AI policy. And, you know, the the world that is of interest to our listeners might be different from, you know, the way that it's seen by like corporate executives or whatever. So a lot of people doing, you know, quote unquote policy are sort of in information uh, dissemination mode. They're trying to get, you know, policymakers up to speed on what AI is and prevent them from, you know, doing crazy things and sort of answering questions from the public and thinking about, you know, press coverage and stuff like that. So there are many things that fall under the heading of policy that aren't necessarily focused on the long term or focused on AGI or focused on sort of, you know, optimizing for the broad interests of humanity. So uh, I think it's important to sort of, you know, draw the lines in the right way. Uh, but even if you go further and say AI policy research, that's still a pretty broad area. So I think most people, you know, who are doing AI policy research are, you know, fairly zoomed into a particular domain of application, like either, you know, uh, autonomous cars or uh, predictive policing or something like that, or like a slightly higher level category like law enforcement technology or something like that. Uh, so I, I think, you know, it's not clear yet what the sort of synthesis of these communities will be and, and you know, what an optimal distribution would be. But currently, I see fairly disconnected communities having kind of different conversations. Yeah, so I think that in terms of like room for growth, uh, I would say that if people are interested in working either on the kind of more action oriented side of AI policy or on the research side of AI policy, there's like a huge amount of room for growth in both. And I also think that they go kind of hand in hand in some cases. So if you're doing research into AI policy, very often you're going to want to add in certain kind of like actionable steps that people can take on the basis of that research. And I think that's really important because there can be something a bit disheartening about reading something fairly abstract and then not being told like how to respond to a problem or like things that can actually be done. And it's like kind of excellent when you have people in the right positions to be able to say, yes, here's like a kind of here's a direct output of this that I could, in fact, do. Um, so I second like what Miles said, but would also say like if people are interested in kind of one or the other, like huge amounts of room for both. I'd say that there's huge room for translators. And I describe myself as as that. So Miles and Demanda are producing a lot of the fundamental ideas that will be inherent to AI policy. And they're also from time to time going and talking to policymakers or other parties about their research. I spend maybe half my time just going and talking to people and trying to translate not just our ideas, but general ideas about technical trends in AI or impacts of AI to policymakers. And what I've discovered is that the traditional playbook for policy is to have someone who speaks policy, who's kind of like a lobbyist or a, a, an ex-politician, and they talk to someone who speaks tech, who may be at the companies like home office or home base. And as a consequence, neither side is as informed as they could be. The policy person that speaks tech doesn't have a great idea of how the sausage gets made in Washington or Brussels or whatever. And the policy person who speaks policy doesn't really have a deep appreciation for the technology and specifically the technology's trajectory and likely areas of impact. And I found that just by being able to go into the room and say, I'm here to talk about this tech and I'm here to talk about the areas it may go over the next four to five years has been very helpful for a lot of policy people because they think over that timeline, but they rarely get people giving them 
a coherent technical description of what's going to happen. I hope to come back to uh, yeah, learning about uh, OpenAI's strategy for for making AI go well uh, later on. But first, I, I'm just I'm very curious to get uh, your views on what people ought to expect about like what capabilities AI is likely to develop over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. So, some eyebrows being raised here. <laughs> but it's, it's a classic, a difficult question. But, but just, 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 okay, go on, go Miles. Well, so the reason I'm raising my eyebrows is that, first of all, this is very up my alley. I'm interested in this sort of question, but it's also very difficult. And for example, we had a report on the malicious use of AI last year where we sort of had these, you know, fairly abstract, but you know, these like semi-concrete, semi-abstract scenarios, which we said were plausible within five to ten years. Some of them had to do with generation of text. I would say like we, you know, classified this broad area of, you know, more human-like creation of media as a potential source of threat. But we didn't know exactly how quickly the technical progress uh, would occur, uh, that NLP would, you know, have this big jump in performance compared to, uh, say, images. I mean, arguably, you know, there's been substantial progress in images, but, you know, that we're sort of catching up now in the language domain. So I think it's hard to be very confident about those sorts of things. And uh, in part, that's because we don't have the right infrastructure. So we're sort of flying in the dark about, you know, what what is the most likely misuse of this language model? We don't have good ground truth on what people are doing with crappier versions. So I think, you know, that there's a lot of room for improvement, both in terms of actually making grounded technical forecasts, as well as sort of uh, building an infrastructure to map how these technologies are actually used. Just just to, just to frame the question a little bit. So like I, I follow this as kind of a person, an amateur person with some interest in it. And I guess there's been like various posts that maybe alarm me a little bit, but I'm not sure how to read them. So there's uh, OpenAI put out a blog post uh, describing how it seems like there's been about a 300,000 fold increase in the amount of computation that goes into building like the state of the art uh, ML models since uh, 2012. I guess like just last week, we got this news about DeepMind uh, producing uh, uh, like an ML pro- program, AlphaStar, uh, that's uh, that's extremely good at uh, playing StarCraft and is now um, beating the best players or are very close to doing it, which uh, seemed like it was going to be quite challenging uh, just, just uh, you know, a year ago. And then just today, uh, OpenAI has released this blog post describing uh, the, the new method of producing uh, kind of natural sounding text paragraphs like basically essays written written by uh, ML programs as far as I understand uh, that seem at least some of the time like quite convincing it's almost uh, as though a human wrote them although they don't have perhaps a great grasp of the concepts and they're not saying anything terribly sensible but how like it's just very hard for me to read this and get any sense of like is this going ahead of like what we thought it would like how difficult are these tasks in reality and maybe does, does anyone know the answer to these questions? One thing that's become clear is that there's an interplay between the kind of complexity of the task you're trying to do and also how many tasks you are doing. So we've moved from this regime of evaluating single-purpose AI systems against single benchmarks to usually single AI systems against multiple benchmarks. And you've seen this in reinforcement learning, where we've started to test single agents on kind of multiple games or multiple games of games You've seen this in language modeling, where in the case of what we released today, we're testing that on like 10 or 11 different things. You see this in other large-scale systems, even AlphaZero, which is playing chess and Shogi and Go, right? And so the fact that we've moved to sort of multiple evaluations of single systems should itself tell us that there's been a significant growth in the underlying complexity of these things. They now have symptoms which need to be evaluated symptoms of some kind of like air quotes cognition which is very weird and different to a specific point in time task i think the other way that i think about it is that humans are incredibly bad at modeling really big growth curves and so when we see this growth of compute by like 300,000 x in six years and see that it correlates to many of these 
machine learning results which have been surprising, like machine translation, Dota 2, AlphaGo, uh, the original DQN algorithm on Atari, it makes me think that our ability to predict any further than the next three years is actually somewhat limited. Yeah, I mean, I think I would second that. And I would also say that like people can look at some of these results and maybe be alarmed or like, you know, just see something like a kind of upward trend. But it's also worth noting that sometimes like key difficulties are very hard to predict as well. Um, so not only areas in which you're going to see more progress and areas in which we'll have more data, for example, but just areas in which uh, you suddenly see technical difficulties that you didn't anticipate. And it's worth bearing that in mind. And uh, yeah, I think this is like a reason for uh, at least to be a bit more measured uh, in one's response to these results. Just to add one point is that it's important to distinguish things that we can be reasonably confident about or could be more confident about, like the sort of structural properties of AI as a technology to be governed. The idea that, you know, once you've trained a system, it's easy to produce copies of it. That sort of has some social implications and implications for how you release things like our decision today. Things like the fact that the upper limit on the speed of these systems is much higher than humans. Uh, You can see that with the case of GPT-2 and our announcement today. I mean, what's impressive both is that it's producing these coherent samples, but also that it can do it at a superhuman rate and scale. So I think that we have to think not just about what is the sort of waterline of capabilities, but also like, you know, what's the, you know, sort of scale up from those to social impact and in terms of speed, you know, quantity, etc. I'd, I'd like to just reiterate kind of what Miles said and, and note that there are hard problems which we know are definitely going to be here forever. Like, how do you release increasingly powerful systems while being confident that they aren't going to be able to cause harm? Like, that's a, a long-term kind of safety problem. And it's also a short-term real policy question in the case of today's text generation systems or things like facial recognition systems. So uh, how much do you kind of focus on what needs to be done to make sure that AI goes well in the next couple of years versus like the next couple of decades? It seems like there's like different timelines where you might be focusing on like, you know, what this community ought to ought to be ought to be working on. Just from the OpenAI perspective, our stuff, our activities are designed to be robust to the long term. And ideally, as a second order effect should help the short term. So, you know, one of our initiatives is going and talking about the need for better methods to measure and assess AI. And we want a broader number of people to be doing that, not just AI organizations, but specific government agencies, third party researchers, academics. That's something where if we did it today, it would just improve debates and decision making about a number of near-term policy questions. But fundamentally, what it's doing is it's building capacity for having a global community of people that think about measuring AI progress, which we think is a prerequisite for sensible policy with regard to long-term powerful systems. Yeah, so I, I think there's some sort of irreducible uncertainty about how much you know the, the challenges we're facing today will translate into future ones. But we, as Jack said, we should be very mindful of sort of locking in the right the right or wrong set of institutions and norms and debate. So that's something I worry about is sort of, uh, you know, maybe we don't have to solve everything in the next year or two, but we do want to at least, you know, do some damage control and prevent people from locking into, you know, an AI arms race mentality, for example. Yeah, I think it's tricky because in most cases, there's like kind of robust interventions that you can do that work pretty well, like regardless of whether um, you have kind of in the long term and in the short term. The key worry is going to be cases where there's like any inconsistency between what you would do 
now if you were thinking that you're going to face like a challenging result in three months versus a challenging result that's going to happen over the course of a year I think for the most part there's often not attention there you want to do things like build the kinds of institutions and responses that are great now and great going forward into the future I do think that in many ways uh, and this is an opinion that I'd be interested to know maybe other people disagree with it but challenges that come quickly and kind of uh, in a way that you didn't anticipate are uh, much more difficult than ones that you have a lot of time to respond to and build institutions around and so in some ways you can think that actually we will have a lot of time to deal with some of these problems and we can simply build like slowly build the institutions that are that we think are like good for managing them um you know so around things like text generation um, but it can be worth just doing work that assumes that you won't necessarily have that like long time to think about things, just because in that case, it can be really hard to spin up a response really quickly unless you have, in fact, been anticipating that possibility. So sometimes uh, we can end up working on things that are focused on, well, what happens if we discover in three months that there's going to be this really important result that's going to have massive policy implications? And ideally, you're like, well, we've already been thinking about that for the last year. So that's like great. Yeah, and we we to some extent already do this like the long-term good version of the world you want is you want to have formal processes for coordinating between different labs that's going to obviously take a while to build while we're trying to build that we're also creating the super hacky version of that which works today of informal relationships between us and people at other labs basically because we will get surprised and we will need to draw on things that have the shape of the sort of institutions we want to build in the long term and which function in a similar way today, but which are the the Wright brothers held together with scotch tape equivalent of the, the big jet engine that we're sort of driving towards. Jack, if I understood you correctly, uh, you were saying that it's it's interesting that we now have kind of reinforcement learning algorithms that can accomplish multiple, like quite, quite different um, outputs. And I noticed it, it seemed like you were using the same uh, reinforcement learning algorithm here um, at OpenAI to both train a hand in how to like pick things up and, and manipulate objects, as well as to win at this game, uh, Dota 2, uh, was it D- Defense of the Ancients 2? Yeah. It's another, it's a game kind of like, like StarCraft 2, uh, as far as I know. Uh, that's kind of surprising to me that you would like use the same underlying system for that. But perhaps that just shows my na- naivety about this technology. Um, what's, what's, the, what's the story there? So I'll, I'll tell you the cartoonish explanation of why a robot hand and a computer game are just the same problem. And maybe that will shed some light on this. So in Dota 2, you have to control a team of, of several different people. You need to move them around a map and you need to attack an enemy. So with the case of a robot hand, you need to hold an object move your fingers and rotate it to the desired position. So what do those things have to do with each other? Well, actually, they have weirdly large amounts of stuff in common. So your hand has 20 or 30 different joints in it. At the same time, the number of actions that you can take at any one point in time in Dota 2 is, you know, 10 to 20 main actions, plus you can select your specific movement. In the same way that when you're rotating an object in your hand, it's partially observable. You're aware of the connection of the object where it connects to your own sense of it uh, and sense of its friction but you aren't aware of the shape of the entire object from a sensory perspective there are bits which are occluded to you bits you can't feel it's the same in dota 2 where you are not able to see the whole map you're able to see the bits where the enemies connect to you or where you explore it and counterintuitively you end up in a place where you from a computational perspective, these are remarkably similar problems. And the truth is, is that many problems in life are 
similar at root when it comes to compute. We've just lacked generalizable uh, software systems that we can attach to those problems, but can basically interpret the different inputs and compress it down to the same computational problem which they then solve. We used an algorithm called Proximal Policy Optimization, PPO, which is a fairly robust algorithm. What we mean by robust is really just you can throw it at loads of different contexts and you don't need to worry too much about tuning it. It will sort of do okay initially. I think that speaks to the huge challenge of AI policy is that we are going to continue to invent things like PPO. We are going to continue to do things like train an increasingly large general language model. And whenever we do these things, we're going to enable vast amounts of uses, some of which we can't predict. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just comment a bit more concretely in the context of language models. I, I think it's uh, a particularly tricky case there uh, because if you read the blog posts and the research paper, it's clear that the strength of the system comes from this sort of uh, fairly unsupervised or you know very unsupervised sort of learning process on huge amounts of uh, diverse data. So it's sort of hard to uh, you know maintain the strength of that system while having a sort of more controllable you know, say single topic system that can only do one thing. It's hard to sort of, we, we don't know what a pipeline is yet that will result in a fairly narrow but competent natural language system uh, that doesn't have potential for misuse. But we now seem to know how to make a generic one that, that does have potential for misuse. So if in fact these tasks are like subtly more similar than, than what it might appear, perhaps is it like less interesting that a very similar like a learning algorithm can, can can learn to do both of them because you might worry that like oh it actually if like almost if like most tasks are like more similar than it seems then you might expect more rapid progress because we can just have one underlying like learning process and then it can just like learn to do practically everything that, that humans do but um, yeah, maybe maybe it's just that like it happens to be that hands and computer games are similar I think that this is a general rule that will come true over time the story of the last few years has been increasingly robust algorithms that are more resilient to the context changing around them. And if you look, you step out from individual things like reinforcement learning to just look across supervised learning, RL, unsupervised learning, you see this trend across all of it. I should note that it wasn't very easy to get this to work on both. <laughs> like, we're, we're, we're incredibly excited it did. Uh, it, it was a humbling experience for OpenAI to work on real robotic hardware. I would recommend everyone who has calibrated intuitions about AI timelines spend some time doing stuff with real robots, and it will probably, uh, how should I put this, further calibrate your intuitions in, in quite a humbling way. All right, let's, let's push on to the uh, malicious uh, AI report. So the uh, yeah last uh, year in February you released this uh, malicious AI uh, article. I think it had twenty six authors, of which uh, I think at least uh, Miles Miles and Jack were on there. Maybe Amanda had some input as well. Yeah, I guess you had like four high level uh, recommendations that we might be able to go through. But maybe do you, do you just want to kind of summarize uh, what was the key message here? And perhaps uh, it's it sounds like uh, today's article about uh, the, the production of uh, kind of natural language like uh, definitely plays into this, or is like an example of like a risky risky application of AI. Yes. Yeah, so I. I'm not sure that this is exactly how we were thinking about it at the time, but in retrospect, I think the best way to think about it is that the malicious use report sort of framed the general topic at a high level of abstraction and pointed to a lot of key variables and structural factors like the scalability of AI that might cause one to sort of have some uh, reason to be worried about this stuff. But there was you know, irreducible uncertainty or you know, possibly somewhat reducible, but some 
uh, you know, some substantial uncertainty about which the most promising or, you know, uh, defenses were and what the most worrying threats were. And I think now we have a much richer sense of what the threat landscape looks like in the case of language. And I think over the course of time, that's sort of how we'll follow up on the report is sort of diving deeper. We sort of framed this high level search problem of, you know, find a way to deal with, uh, you know, dual use AI. And now we we know a little bit more about what the levers and options are in one context. But I think the broader issue still remains. And one of the recommendations of the report was that AI organizations kind of look into publication and different methods of doing different types of publication. So today, with this language model, we're releasing a research paper, we're not releasing the data set, we're releasing the small model, not the large model. So we are trying to sort of run almost a, a responsible experiment in this domain of that was recommended by the malicious uses report. We broadly think that lots of the recommendations in that report probably need to get more evidence generated around those recommendations. And so we'd be excited to see other organizations also do this and create more case studies that we can then learn from. Yeah, I think one of the useful things is that we have used this as a kind of reason to make sure we're kind of evaluating the potential for misuse of our own systems. And I think this is helpful both because it means that we end up using these as essentially case studies in how to do this well and then get feedback on that um, and try to make sure that we are doing so responsibly which might seem trivial from the outside, but I also think it's really easy for people who are building things with the intention of doing good, which is the case with almost all ML researchers, to not think about the ways in which someone who wanted to misuse the system could misuse the system. And so I think the fact that we are starting to do that kind of evaluation is important. Um, and I think also, ideally, the more that other people do this, then we end up getting more case studies on like uh, dual use of systems and how to respond to those uh, concerns, including, you know, feedback that we get on publication norms, for example. The, the four kind of high-level recommendations, are what was, I guess, uh, I'll, I'll read bits of them. So number one was uh, policymakers should collaborate closely with technical researchers to investigate, prevent, and mitigate potential malicious uses of AI. Uh, two was uh, researchers and engineers in AI should take the dual-use nature of their work seriously. Three is at best uh, practices should be identified in research areas uh, with more mature methods for addressing dual use concerns. Uh, and then four is uh, actively seek to expand the range of stakeholders and domain experts involved in discuss discussions of these challenges. Reading that, it all feels like very high level. It's like, who, who should be doing what, I guess, is a little yeah. bit the response so, that people have. Yeah. yeah, so I think it was somewhat high level on purpose because we had, you know, or or by necessity because we had 26 authors. Um <laughs> But and, you know, multiple institutions. But yeah, I think there was also some inevitable ab abstraction because, you know, there, there are a bunch of like known unknowns uh, that relate to, you know, what the most worrying concerns are that we had limited information about at the time. So I think it was kind of inevitable that, uh, you know, there would be some learning process and that some of our recommendations would m miss the mark. So concretely, we now have a better understanding of, you know, what a, a concrete experiment in openness uh, in, you know, a different approach to openness looks like. And, you know, we'll be following closely over what researchers' reactions are and, and you know, how, whether others, uh, you know, reproduce our results and if so, how quickly and what they do and whether they publish. So there's a bunch of information that we'll be getting, you know, in this particular context. But I think, you know, more generally, there are other other domains that we have even less information about. Yeah, and I could maybe tell you um, a little sort of cartoon story for how I think of this. So one of these recommendations is about policymakers being better able to kind of assess and mitigate the malicious uses of AI. So how do we get there? Well, I think that means that technical experts need to help produce tools to let policymakers 
assess malicious uses of AI or unsafe uses of AI. You could imagine an organization like OpenAI coming up with some metrics that relate to the safety of a given system, trying to work with a multi-stakeholder group like, say, the Partnership for AI, having that group or a subgroup within it think about the safety measures that OpenAI has proposed. And if they end up agreeing that those are good measures, you could then go to policymakers and say, it's not just one organization, it's, you know, this subset of the 80 person membership of PAI that has said you should consider using this technical metric when thinking about safety. So we can we can think about actual discrete sets of work that people can do here now, which I think is new. And I'm excited to have us all figure out what those should be, because there's clearly a lot of stuff that needs to get done. I think one thing that it's useful to know on the question of like the abstraction here is just that I think it can actually be good in many cases to have fairly abstract recommendations when you are looking at an extremely broad domain potentially. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to give really specific recommendations of the form don't release your model, because in lots of cases, you know, if we just had that as a norm across the field, you would expect it to be pretty harmful. And so you have to do a lot of things on a case by case basis, which means that one of the first things you end up doing is just giving kind of abstract recommendations and principles. And then you look at specific cases and you say, well, what precisely can we do in this case that is getting the right balance between, say, openness and making sure that we're preventing malicious use and then using that as like a study going forward. Um, so in many ways, I want to kind of both defend, but also note the importance of not giving hyper specific policy recommendations when it comes to just an, what is an extremely broad range of potential innovations and, you know, events. And so that's probably why it's good to keep things like abstract and high level when the domain is extremely broad. And often it's the case that the optimal action to take depends on the actions of others. So you probably shouldn't specify everything in advance. So for example, our decision on the language model release might have you know, been different in a world in which we you know, knew that someone else already had a 100x bigger one and was about to release it, for example. Are there any yeah, malicious uses of AI that you think uh, we should anticipate occurring over the next uh, couple of years? And uh, are there any like concrete things that we should be thinking about doing now to, to protect ourselves against those, those changes? I guess I get to be Dr. Doom here. I think that some of these malicious uses of AI, talking about them is itself a safety and a policy challenge. You know, we think about the, the topic of information hazard here at OpenAI. And what that means is, when you're talking about some research or even talking about hypothetical research, are you at risk of saying something that could kind of differentially accelerate some actor or group of actors towards developing AGI more or an unsafe thing? So that's why I'm going to be a little cagey in my responses. But I do have a couple of examples for you. I think that the intersection of drones and increasing amounts of autonomy via pre-trained models is going to be an area of huge policy concern. And I'm inspired to say that because we have observed that in the field of asymmetric warfare, groups have used drones to go and do new types of warfare because they let them access a new type of military capability, which is I can go and cause you trouble at distance, attribution to me becomes harder, I have control of a mobile platform, and I can drop munitions from it. We're obviously concerned about what happens when those mobile platforms that can drop munitions gain autonomy. And that will be an area where you have real questions 
about publication norms emerge, I would expect very quickly from the first case of that happening. I think our work on language is us trying to experiment in the domain where you're not talking about people's lives being at risk. You are you are talking about severe effects to be sure, but you're a little ahead of where the rubber really hits the road there. The, the other way we can expect these malicious things to be used, I think, is just in poisoning public spaces. So I don't I don't have to be that smart to make it difficult for you and I to have a conversation. I just need to be incoherent and to never stop talking, which is actually relatively easy to do. And I think that when people start to start to do that, that's the point when governments are going to start to think about speech as being human or AI driven, which will raise its own malicious uses and sort of legal questions. Yeah, I guess if, if I can play play skeptic for a minute. So yeah, I guess when I read that report, when I think about this in general, I, th- I find it that it's like, it's easy to whip myself into a lather of being worried about all these new uh, potential threats. But then sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, kind of, we can already do this stuff. So it's like w- w- with drones, for example, you could try to like, you could shoot people from the drone. But well, what, one is governments can already do that. Uh, but also, you know, ever since we've had like sniper rifles, it's been like fairly easy to like try to shoot some from someone from a long way away and very hard to get caught. There was like a, that, that spate of like terrorist attacks in DC, I think back in 2001 or 2002, where just people got into the back of a car, like, uh, and started like shooting people from far away with a sniper rifle and it was like extremely hard to catch them so this is like something that people could already do is the drone like adding all that much there and there's also like hacking so breaking into systems i think we already believe basically that like all of the major governments in the world have hacked the electricity grids of most of the other like major governments in the world and would like shut them off or try to do so if, if they were ended up in a war with them so in a sense it's like how much like capability is, is this really adding uh, i think like even during the syrian civil war there was like you know uh, vigilante groups that had like pretty substantial like cyber cyber war capabilities and for example you people also worry about you know ai being used in kind of phishing attacks and things like that phishing is people is already so unbelievably easy it's kind of hilarious and like everybody needs to get utf keys to protect themselves against that already uh, without without adding ai into the picture yeah do, do, do you kind of share sometimes this thing that people can be a bit hysterical about things that are not that different than what we already have. For sure. And some people accuse of us of being hysterical with the malicious use report. I think, you know, time will tell, uh, you know, who was or wasn't hysterical or, you know, had their heads in the sand or other characterizations. But I think, you know, one point that I'll sort of reiterate from earlier is that it's important to distinguish sort of the capabilities of the system, you know, on some human scale or some other scale versus the structural properties of the technology like scale and speed. So I think, uh, it just because humans are already doing it doesn't mean that it won't change the economics of crime or the economics of information uh, if you made it much easier to do it. Well, I think we know that when stuff gets fast and or cheap, the dynamics change. You know, Miles just alluded to that. And I think that if we can think of a world where fishing via AI is 100 times cheaper than fishing via a person or, or generating disinformation via a human is 100 times more expensive than using an AI, then you'd expect to see the types of people using this technology change. To your point about sniper rifles and such, yes. However, I think that the drone argument is more compelling where you've been able to buy the ability to go and attack people at distance for a long time via stuff like sniper rifles, except they're somewhat controlled. And now this sort of drones arrive, and now I have the ability to attack people at distance, which is much, 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 much cheaper. It's also much faster for me to acquire, like, drones and use them against people than it is for me to acquire loads of sniper rifles. And so there you saw that a change in the speed of deployment and also the cost of deployment meaningfully altered the behavior of actors and also meaningfully altered military responses. So if I'm a military now 
and I'm sending soldiers into an area where I'm dealing with sort of asymmetric, war-minded people, I have to have soldiers who are protected against small drones carrying grenades. So now I need to outfit them with different things. So actually, you see that tools are always used to litigate like the economics of war. And it may not seem like a big deal that you're just changing the tool, even though the capability remains the same. But if you look at what it does to the costs and incentives of the different actors, those changes can have really significant second order effects. Yeah, so I think when we think about things like uh, technically we can do some action now, so why should we be worried about things in the future? One thing it's important to think about is what is it that prevents more of these actions from occurring? And I think when you think about that, often it's things like, well, it can be done, but it's not trivial to do, for example. So if you make something a little bit less trivial to do, you see like a large reduction in the amount of people that do it. Another thing is like we've built up pretty secure institutions to prevent people from behaving badly. You know, we've created a kind of uh, set of incentives around that. And so one thing you should be concerned about, I think, are cases where the current mechanisms, and those are just a couple of examples that uh, mean that, you know, things that we're technically capable of doing, we don't see like massive misuse of them. Think about ways in which those mechanisms could break down um, if you see kind of uh, technological advances of certain types. And I think, you know, so the move from it is possible to commit a successful phishing attack to it is trivial to, if you just want some money, you can just do it instantly. In my mind, like I think it might make a huge difference uh, to the amount of this that we see. Similarly, think about things like the institutions that we have, so like legal institutions around these issues and how responsive and well adapted they are to some of these problems. And if we think that we don't anticipate current institutions actually being able to deal with it well, and then that's another reason to be really worried that as you make these things easier and more trivial, you just see like a lot more of it in the future. Yeah, I've read some uh, articles lately about this uh, this drone issue because apparently, like ISIS was using them in the in, in in the war in Syria. I guess I was I was left a little bit confused about uh, why it's so hard to design countermeasures against them. You'd think you could just create like counter drones that you just say go and go and crash into that drone and and, and pull it out of the sky. And uh, like, how can that be so much harder than than designing the the, the uh, like attack drones in, in in the first place? I guess I'm v- I'm very curious to hear whether there's like any ideas out there for like for countermeasures for the for the kind of things that we're worried about uh, in, in the next few years that are uh, already being like developed or people are already trying to. Get, get, get policy implemented? There is a lot of interest in countermeasures. They vary in terms of scalability and cost and so forth. I think, you know, more generally, I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in what the state of the art of the countermeasures, but for a publication on this uh, general issue, there's a good paper by Ben Garfinkel and Alan Defoe on sort of how the offense and defense balance might scale over time as we automate sort of both sides. And I think that's very relevant here. So, so one dynamic that I think is important is Many ways to both attack with AI and defend against AI involve compute. It involves spending some amount of resources on on compute. And so there's this underlying dynamic, which is, yes, we may have technical countermeasures. It's unclear how many of these countermeasures can be defeated by the attacker having a bigger computer or, or not. And I think that that idea of the extent to which AI is like offense dominant or defense dominant, depending on the underlying computational resources of the actor, will have a big bearing on AI grand strategy. And it's not clear how we get better information about this. 
One one uh, malicious use of AI that stuck with me from the the interview with uh, with Alan Defoe was the potential for China to use it to like stabilize kind of a, a authoritarian uh, rule by you know massive scaled surveillance that that's very cheap and like tracking a lot of information about kind of every citizen and uh, yeah, being able to keep tabs on them so that such that it's like very hard to engage in any kind of civil disobedience. Um, do you have, and I guess you just raised the issue here of uh, it just poisoning politics by allowing you to have like kind of garbled speech at like such a such a huge scale that it's hard for like humans to, to even speak to one another um, at least at least online yeah do, do you have any uh, thoughts on, on on how that uh situation or like ai's influence on, on on politics is 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 progressing one of the clear truths is that ai augments other stuff you know ai isn't really a thing in itself maybe in the long term if we have long-term powerful agi style systems it will become that way but for now a lot of ai takes place in the form of a discrete capability that you layer over another part of the world therefore ai is uniquely powerful in the context of political systems where you can dovetail your political system and structure into your technology substrate as a society and that's something which in the market you're going to have more trouble with because the markets may not allocate technical resources to your specific political will there may be confounding factors like it just doesn't make money people don't like it in the case of maven the employees don't want to build it all of these problems in the case of a different regime a regime where you have government and tech move a lot more together because they're they're naturally bound up more through a whole bunch of things ai is going to make you more effective along those along those lines one of the challenges that we're going to deal with in the west is that we have a certain political system here which doesn't seem to get accelerated that much by ai whereas more centralized and control-based systems do seem to get accelerated by it I think there's an open question as to whether that's like a risk that societies that don't have that capability need to think about, or perhaps an opportunity to think about how might we structure ourselves with AI when the more advanced AI systems we need to to sort of make our government better arrive. Uh, It's a good and weird question. Yeah, just to like kind of agree with Jack on some of this, I think that one thing you want to think about are ways in which our current institutions are already a little bit robust to some of these problems and ways in which they aren't. So I think one reason why people have been so kind of concerned about like the possibility of generated news or like generated political speech is that in some ways our system isn't as robust to that as we might think. And I think we've seen that, you know, where people are allowed to post articles and people are allowed to post articles on their social news feed and ways in which that can just be kind of undermined because it's not something that we have these like safeguards against. And that's going to just vary across different states, essentially. Um, So in some states, you do, in fact, have some safeguards against like malicious kind of uh, use of uh, speech in political campaigns. And in many states, you have similar mechanisms to prevent like, you know, massive surveillance in ways that could be problematic. Uh, so I think that like it's important not to kind of look at this as a problem of like in some ways that these are problems that every state has and not just uh, something like centralized states uh, versus uh, the West, for example. So, yeah, just kind of worth noting, I think. People have raised this concern about AI influencing politics a lot with the, the 2016 uh, presidential election. Uh, I think uh, having looked into it a little bit, I'm, I'm not as convinced that it had all that much impact on, on how how people actually voted at the, at the end of the day. But I suppose I'm left in this awkward position of saying it didn't have much impact, but I'm really worried that it will in future because we're just kind of 
kind of seeing the the tip of the iceberg here, or just seeing the the the, the very beginning of what's of what's possible. I think another one with this is a lot of people are worried about AI or technology uh, causing uh, mass unemployment, and I think I, d- I don't see very much evidence at all that like that the any employment that we're seeing today is mostly driven by technological improvements. But I'm I'm like very concerned that that in the longer term, uh, absolutely like it's quite possible that like almost everyone will, will be out of a job because uh, AI and, and machines will be able to do everything that that, that, that we can do better. Uh, yeah, do you have do you have any comments on this? Have you looked into either, either of those questions? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, first of all, there are several outstanding bets and you know some resolved and some outstanding bets on this topic and for example uh, Tim Huang Rebecca Krutoff and a few other sort of relevant experts have uh, been featured in IEEE Spectrum magazine debating these topics and sort of making bets about whether it would have a big big impact in 2018 or in, in 2020 and I think you know it's hard to come to a strong conclusion about these things because you could interpret the evidence in various ways you could say oh well it didn't happen this time but that's because they're saving their you know, special sauce for next time. So sort of an unfalsifiable perspective. So I think that's why we need these conversations to be more grounded in what's actually happening and sort of build that infrastructure. Yeah, I think in the case of unemployment, it's just an extremely difficult question to answer because a lot of it varies by like how responsive the market is, for example. So if you see like the automation of like one uh, small field, does this basically have very little impact on unemployment because people can just get jobs in other fields and you've got general economic growth as a result of that? This seems kind of plausible to me in many cases. It's a bit harder to anticipate what would happen if you saw this happen like more rapidly and across like a broader range of fields. I also think that one question that people have, you know, started to ask that is really important is like who this affects. You know, so for example, could automation have a really negative effect on people in uh, developing countries? So not just thinking like within states, but between states. Uh, so it's very hard to predict based on what we've currently seen. And I can understand why someone would be optimistic based on that. But I also think there are reasons to think that if you saw, for example, like rapid automation of larger fields, then it might be that uh, we do see changes that we didn't anticipate based purely on like looking at some very specific type of factory work being automated. I think a, a good example here is when we got the first websites for uploading and sharing videos i think everyone thought great here's like a way to waste time or to better inform myself about the world and and we did get that what we also got was a system whereby we plugged the incentives of advertising and clickbait into creating content for three-year-old to five-year-old children to essentially sort of hack their brains no one decided to go and make content to hack children's brains we just build a system that intersected with a market that led to that being there being enough incentives there for that stuff to be created. And I think that highlights how it's really, really tricky to correctly anticipate where it's really going to hurt you. And I think that some of the mindset which I, I want us as an organization to think about and other AI researchers more generally is it's helpful to imagine the positive uses of your stuff as well as the negative uses and yes it's likely that many of your predicted negative uses are not going to be the ones that matter like in the case of deep fakes in the short term yeah maybe concerns about them being used in politics were overblown but maybe the concerns about them being used to target and harass women who had been in relationships with like skeezy men who then make deep fakes porn out of those women to embarrass them off for a relationship Maybe that was underblown because that's caused real human harm. We just don't talk about it because it doesn't fit with a big narrative like politics. It just fits to what an individual's life has become like. 
But we're now in a world where an individual has to deal with this, especially if they're female, as an attack vector. And that just adds sort of cognitive load to their life and has all of these effects that we can't quite predict the outcomes of. Yeah, this is a criticism, I guess, that some people would make of this whole field is to say that it's it's just so hard to anticipate what's going what's going to happen, even in a couple of years' time. That when it comes to AI policy, we should really be f- focusing on fixing the problems that are like occurring right now, or that we can, you know, we think might happen in the next few months, rather than the, rather than trying to to look ahead. What do you think of that? I'm going to politely completely disagree with you and make a point that Miles also made earlier, and, and Amanda has been making, which is that there are these larger problems that we know to be true. We know that with increasingly transformative technology, you need the ability to coordinate between increasingly large numbers of actors to allow that technology to make its way into the world stably. That's not going to stop being a problem of concern, and it's not going to stop being a problem that gets more important over time. Of course, we can't say, we need to all work together now because we have a specific technical assumption that will come true in eight years. That that would be totally absurd. But I don't think anyone serious is kind of proposing that they're saying we have the general contours of some problems we accept that the the details may change but there's no way the problems change unless you fix uh, all of like human emotion and fallibility in the short term which is unlikely to happen yeah in many ways i think i just don't see the projects as being inconsistent and there's just room to do work on both um so sometimes i don't like it when it's kind of pitted against each other like i'm really glad that people are working on these immediate problems and in many ways i think when you're working on problems that are uh, or you're trying to think about long-term problems the issues that are identified in these like immediate term problems can often be the kind of seed of things that you are generalizing both in terms of concerns and in terms of solutions you know so if you see something like um deep fakes like making women's lives terrible, you can think about things like, well, what are the mechanisms that we would usually use or we would want to see in place to prevent that from happening? Are those generally good mechanisms that could in fact help with like future problems of that sort? So I think it's tricky because I'm just, yeah, I think it's more like reiterating the point of short-term work and long-term work are not inconsistent and in many ways very complementary to one another. So I guess because uh, we talked about this a malicious AI report that's kind of kept our, our focus a bit on like what, what kind of things we might expect in the next five, five or ten years. Uh, but I guess most people, I think I mentioned all of us here, uh, are like mostly concerned about this because we think like AI is going to have really transformative impacts uh, in, in, in the longer term. And uh, focusing on what's happening in the shorter term is kind of a way into, into affecting the longer term. Do any of you want to comment on the relationship between these, between these uh, two, two issues? Yeah, I think the distinction is super overblown. Um, and I mean, I've, I'm guilty of having propagated this short-term, long-term distinction in, in among other places in 80,000 Hours article a while back. But I think, you know, A, like there are a bunch of good arguments that have been made for why, you know, there are at least some points of uh, agreement between, uh, you know, these different communities' concerns around, you know, sort of what are the right publication norms and what role should governments play and how do we avoid collective action problems and so forth. So first of all, they're structurally similar things. And secondly, they plausibly involve the same exact actors uh, and possibly the same exact sort of policy steps, like sort of setting up uh, connections between AI labs and, you know, managing compute possibly. So there are these levers that I think are like pretty generic. And I think a lot of this distinction 
uh, between short and long term is sort of antiquated based on overly confident views of AI sort of not being a big deal until it suddenly is a huge deal. And I think we're getting increasing amounts of evidence that we're in a more sort of gradual world. I guess it seems like on to me on the on the technical side, uh, like people have really started to think that the, the problems we have with like AI not doing what we want today are just like smaller cases of this broader problem of like it being very hard to to like instruct a yeah, ML algorithms to, to do like the things that you, that you really want them to do, and kind of the, the basically it's just the same problem at, at, a, at a different level of scale and a different level of like of, of power that the that the algorithm has. Uh, is is the same thing kind of seeming true? Or is, there, is there some kind of convergence on on the, on the policy and strategy side that kind of these these are all just the same things? It's just that the that the issues are going to get bigger and bigger. I mean, I should caveat this by saying that, like, you know, there is uncertainty about how connected these things are and, and you know, how we address the near term things will affect how connected they are to the long term things. So I don't think there's like a, a you know, crisp fact of the matter. But my my general, you know, direction of change over the past several years has been thinking that it's one ish issue. Yeah, I think it is another area where you might just see differences across domains. So I think that it's certainly true that you're seeing a lot of issues that do generalize. And there's a question of also how different they are as you increase capabilities. So, you know, I think the example you might have been alluding to there is something like kind of goal misspecification. You know, so you have a social media site that is just optimizing for people clicking on ads, for example. This can be done like without any kind of like malicious intention. It just ends up being, you know, uh, or, or similarly with like, um, kind of other goals that it turns out are not in fact the things that make the people on the social media site happy or like just continually looking at the social media site rather than like you know doing your work or going and meeting up with your friends etc and the idea there is it can be really easy to not realize that you're targeting the wrong goal and then if you scale the capabilities of that I think the concern becomes much larger because suddenly you have a situation where just slight goal misspecification can actually have like pretty radical results. So, you know, people have used examples that are like, you know, imagine a system that is like monitoring or controlling the whole of the US power grid. Suddenly, like just accidentally misspecifying the goal of that system could be really harmful. So I think this is true in some domains, but we should also anticipate the possibility of like asymmetries in others. And in general, it means that I don't want the message to be something like people should not worry so much about long-term issues because, hey, if we just focus on the short-term problems, it will kind of naturally result in a solution to those long-term issues. Because you could see, for example, uh, an increase in the speed of development in a domain that you didn't expect. Um, And if that's the case, then having merely done these case studies of the immediate impacts of your system won't prepare you um, for the kind of implications and the sort of actions you need to take when that's the case. Uh, let's move on to talking about OpenAI's uh, strategy for, I guess, like making AI safe in general and uh, making sure that yeah, humanity approaches the kind of deployment of, of, of advanced AI in a, in, a, in a smart way. Do you just want to, like, at, at a high level, what is the uh, like approach that OpenAI is taking to, to make, it, make it all go well? So what is our approach to definitely make sure that unpredictable, increasingly powerful advanced technology that everyone uses will benefit everyone and nothing will go wrong? An easy question. Thank you very <laughs> Thank you very much for asking us. Um, I'll give an overview, and I'm sure that Miles or Amanda may have a couple of interpretations as well. You know, as, as my response should indicate, we have a few ideas, but we're not claiming that we know the idea. This is, this is definitely a domain where there, there are more kind of questions than answers. OpenAI has kind of three main areas. It has capabilities, safety, and policy. And these are all quite intentional. You know, safety is about the long-term alignment of systems and investigations into how to assure safety from both the perspective of 
a person interacting with the system, you know, how can I know I'm not being deceived, various things like that, but also from the point of view of a system designer, how can I design a system that won't do unsafe stuff? Policy is about how do we make sure that sort of it goes well at the institutional level, but also how do we make sure that OpenAI has enough constraints placed upon it internally to do the right thing, and how do we take the ideas that come out of safety and come out of capabilities and integrate them not only with ideas relevant to the policy domain, like this experiment we're doing at the moment on publication norms with regard to language, but also how do we go and tell people like military organizations about safety? Because though we do not want to enable military organizations in terms of their capability, we know that they're going to develop capability and we want that capability to be safe or else none of us get to like live in the AGI world because we all die before then, which would be unfortunate. And in my case, I wouldn't like that to happen. The key idea with capabilities is that a lot of these systems are empirical in nature. What I mean by that is that a priori, you can't offer great guarantees about how they will behave. You can't offer really solid guarantees of what capabilities they will and won't have. In the case of our language model, we trained a big model with a single purpose, predict the next word in a sentence. And then when we analyzed the model, we discovered, oh, it can do summarization. If you just write a load of text and put TLDR colon and then ask for a completion, it will give you a summary. Uh, similarly, it can do like English and French translation, other things. We found that out by training a thing and then going and looking at it and sort of prodding it. And so if you're in the world where your way to understand future capabilities for long-term powerful systems is one where you need to like poke and prod them. You really want safety and policy to be integrated into the poking and prodding of what could be some kind of proto-superintelligence. So that would be the rough notion for how OpenAI makes sure this goes well and makes sure that OpenAI is a responsible actor. Yeah, I think I would second that and agree that one of the ways that we're trying to tackle this is by heavily integrating these three fields. In many ways, I'm kind of sympathetic to people who think it's unfortunate that we have terms like safety and possibly also terms like policy, because in almost any other discipline, this would just be part of the task of building the thing. And so in some ways, I think that we're just trying to exemplify this norm of uh, when you're building AI systems, you're trying to build things that help people and are beneficial. And that means that at kind of every stage of development, you should be thinking through both the social implications that your system has if you were to release it and what forms you release it and also safety implications that it has and making sure that you have a way of like verifying that your system is like not going to do unintended harm. And so I think like Stuart Russell had a quote in this where he was like, um, we don't call it uh, building bridges that don't fall down. We just call it building bridges. And so I think it's really uh, important to try and bring these three fields like together and we're, we're doing that and obviously we're also just doing further work in like uh, AI safety which is hopefully going to be useful and uh, AI policy work that is also hopefully going to be useful both within OpenAI and beyond. Yeah so in terms of like super high level framings of the problem I mean I sometimes think of it in terms of you know figure out what steps different actors need to take and then figure out how to get them to take those steps and I think, you know, a lot of safety and sort of ethical issues fall into the first bucket. And then a lot of, you know, game theoretic and economic and legal issues fall into the second. But that's obviously, you know, very rough rubric. What is the ideal vision of like how AI progresses and OpenAI's uh, role in, in, in making, it, making it go well over a period of, of decades? I guess my, my story here is that we help a bunch of 
other AI organizations coordinate and figure out what information they need to share with each other and also the processes for sharing increasingly sensitive information with each other. While doing that, we continue to stay at, you know, in the sort of leading leading edge in terms of capabilities and safety and, and policy. And then we're able to use what we learn to either ensure that ourselves as a sort of main actor coordinates with others to build a safe system and disperse the benefits to humanity or if it's the case that for whatever reason in the in the dynamics of the landscape we are not the main person here we are able to help that main actor make more correct decisions than if we had not existed yeah so i don't have a very concrete preferred scenario and partly because i think as i was saying earlier it depends what actions others take Uh, i mean maybe you could say okay here's a globally optimal you know scenario but i think it's more useful pragmatically for us to have a sort of self-centered view of like what what does this mean for us what actions do we take given this sort of global picture and i think from that perspective it's more important to be robust than optimal uh, and so I think I'm less interested in you know working backwards from a perfect solution and more interested in what are the steps along the way that we could take to marginally move things in the direction of greater trust between actors, greater awareness of you know relevant uh, safety techniques, et cetera. So sort of on the margin, what can be done at every point in time? Yeah, I think I would agree with that where you know there are just so many levers to make sure that things go well here. So there are both like private companies, there are governments, there's already existing institutions like law and working to like improve those to make sure that they're like each step of the way responding to like technological improvements is really important. I do think that in some ways I felt like the question was something like, what is like a really good way of this going or something like that? And I do want to... (laughs) Tell me a beautiful story. Tell you a beautiful story. Yeah, in some ways, I just think that it is easy. I don't want people to be overly pessimistic. Um, You know, I'm very uh, optimistic and excited about technological development. And I think if it's done well, can be extremely beneficial. Like we have a lot of huge problems in the world right now that I think that advanced technologies could really help with. You know, I am actually optimistic about it really improving things like reducing global poverty, improving health outcomes. Like I would love to see, you know, increasing amounts of this being used to cure diseases that we couldn't cure before, etc. And so I think uh, the kind of beautiful story is one where it's like, we'll take a lot of the problems that we currently have that we could just solve if we could put more time into them, for example, and then have a system that can, in fact, just like process uh, more information and can, in fact, put more time into it and can like take in a bunch of medical images and can give you a really accurate diagnoses. And I'm like, that's an exciting world to me. So I think a world where you have pretty robustly safe systems doing these things could, in fact, be like a really wonderful world um, in which we really solve like many outstanding problems so maybe maybe i'm giving the uh, really optimistic view of the future of you know we have no poverty and we're all very healthy and happy <laughs> at 80,000 hours we think of like uh, of ai policy and strategy as uh, one of the areas where it's un- unusually easy perhaps to to cause harm uh, to, to make things worse by by saying or doing or doing the wrong thing what, what are some of the potential ways that you think open ai could could make things worse and and how do you try to anticipate that and and, and avoid that happening we can make people race on capabilities an inherent challenge that we have, and that I think most AI people have, is that we get to create futures ahead of other organizations and other actors like like governments, and we get to see those futures and see the upsides and downsides, and then what we communicate about that will have huge effects on what these people choose to do. And 
it's a domain where you get very little information if what you did was really bad, because really bad in this world usually corresponds to a classified budget massively growing in size. That's necessarily something that is hard to get evidence about from, from where I'm sitting. So I think that's one. I think the other is you could misjudge the types of coordination actions that the community actually wants to do in practice and you could try and contrive a load of things to do with coordination which everyone sort of does up until the point when you get to hard decisions and then those coordination mechanisms might have some flaw which would have been not clear to most people in the community the moment it becomes clear everyone defaults to less communication with each other and less coordination i think those are two of the things but curious what you think amanda yeah, so I mean, I think the first point that you make was one that I was like quite focused on or interested in, where business as usual in a lot of domains is where you have lots of competing actors. And if you're just like an additional actor in that space, a worry that you might have is just that um, you increase the chance that people are going to, you know, try to develop capabilities faster, because the idea is that the goal is to sort of outcompete other people who are within the same domain or producing similar um, systems. I think that one way that we can try and mitigate that a little bit is spreading a view of this entire discipline as one where we often have shared goals with other organizations. So I don't think the goal is something like have your organization be the first to do, you know, some specific task. Rather, there's this shared goal of creating really good uh, advanced technologies. And that means that you shouldn't necessarily see any other actors as competitors, but rather like similarly uh, working towards that goal. And so, yeah, it's difficult where I'm like the potential for increasing the chance of uh, racing is something that does worry me. And I like hope that we can uh, help mitigate that by kind of really focusing on that kind of mindset. On the second point... I do think that another way that you can end up doing more harm without uh, expecting to is yeah, failing to design these mechanisms that actually work uh, when kind of push comes to shove or just failing to anticipate scenarios where actually these mechanisms break down. And there are lots of scenarios that I can think of where the things that we're building, you might just end up kind of not working. And if you haven't got sufficiently, like if you haven't thought of sufficiently many scenarios, that's like one example. Uh, I think another like key thing in policy uh, that it's important to think about is basically like how good the mechanisms that you are recommending or the actions you're recommending are across a wide variety of possible uh, outcomes. So it's really easy for people to think through something like, well, what is the perfect outcome? And then to kind of work backwards from that and to build mechanisms that are like what they see is like the clearest path to the perfect outcome. When in reality, because there's so much uncertainty and so many ways that things can go, you instead have to think about like all of these like distributions of outcomes and things that do pretty well in most of those worlds, uh, rather than like what would get us to the perfect world if things happen as we think that they will happen. And that's a way in which you can end up uh, recommending these kind of brittle mechanisms that do fail and so I think that's like another thing and then a final like way that any organization can uh, end up harming others or like doing unintentional harm is just by making a mistake in a judgment call you know we are thinking about things like publication norms 
uh, with the recent language work. And it's just very easy. There isn't like a huge template for what you do here. And it's really easy to just unintentionally make uh, mistakes or just make the slightly wrong call on what, on what you do or what you release. There's not necessarily a lot you can do about that if you're trying to be as responsible as possible, but it is like a, a possibility here that people have to be aware of. Uh, just one follow-up point on there not being a blueprint. I think that's like a super important and underappreciated point that I think a lot of people a lot of people say, okay, well, why don't you just do this thing, you know, like they did in nuclear policy or whatever. And I think there's a ton of value of using analogies for inspiration and to sort of, you know, make you realize a variable that you hadn't considered uh, or to get you to think more creatively about what's possible. Um, but I think there, you know, you quickly run into limits in terms of what you can get from these analogies in any particular case. So uh, in, in I think, one way in which we probably erred in the malicious use of AI report is thinking that we had more to learn from other fields. It's not to say that there isn't something to learn, but you quickly reach diminishing returns and have to make a sort of context-based decision about, you know, in this particular domain, what are the misuse risks and what are the relative capabilities of different actors and so forth. So it's not clear that, you know, an influenza, you know, virus, you know, case study from like five years ago tells us that much. I imagine that quite a number of listeners might end up going going into this field. Do you want to uh, comment on maybe how cautious it's appropriate for people to be? Uh, as, as you're pointing out, there seems to be people working in AI strategy and policy are like generally quite cautious about what they publish, for example, uh, especially, I guess, at this early stage, because you don't want to uh, frame things incorrectly. I uh, just want to like uh, comment on like whether uh, yeah, other young people entering entering this area should just generally be like very cautious and trying to like always get other people to check what they're doing. I think that one thing that people in this field don't do enough of is calibrate their model for what they should and shouldn't say against uh, the some of the constituents that they really care about. It's quite common that I see people presume a level of attention, competence and awareness in government, which I know does not exist for, for, for some governments. And it conditions the threat model that people have. My experience has been going and talking to people like with this language model we had a lot of questions of what the government would re reaction would be so we just talked to a bunch of people in connected with a bunch of governments and asked them for opinions about it in a way that did not leak information about the precise techniques of the model but let them experience it and i think that that gave us a better calibration as to where we thought the threat was now obviously we could have got this horribly wrong you know I may get out of this podcast to some very exciting email that makes me turn a pale shade of white. Hopefully not. Uh, and I think it's that being cautious is is sensible when you aren't situated in the world, but everyone can get situated because everyone knows someone who knows someone who's involved in a government or an intelligence agency or something like that and can kind of ask some questions. Yeah, so I think in one sense being cautious is like, checking with other people that the work that you're doing is good and useful and in that sense I think it's good to be cautious in fact most people just should be cautious I think another sense of being cautious here that I want to kind of highlight is something like well should I just like not go into this field because look at all of the potential for harm that I can do you know what if I could go into this other field that is like much more uh, guaranteed that I will do some good even if I won't do as much good and I think that if you think that you're going to have valuable contributions um, and you're going to be able to identify if and when anything that you're doing is harmful, then it's better to just go with uh, the kind of 
expected impact that you have, even though that can be kind of uh, psychologically difficult. So it's really easy for people to just do this kind of like harm avoidance strategy with what they do. And it's realizing that that strategy can be either ineffective, uh, you know, so you just have like a lower impact than you wanted to have. And in some cases, like uh, it can be negative. So in many cases, saying something, even though you know it has some potential for harm and like ideally a large potential for good, uh, can be better than saying nothing. And that saying nothing can often actually be itself harmful. Uh, And I think people can sort of forget that when they're thinking about how cautious to be both in terms of like what they're uh, saying and the work that they're producing and also just with their careers generally and what they want to do be careful but like yeah I think that would be my general advice yeah so one general comment on risk aversion and sort of you know putting out work that's you know not finished I think that some people in the EA community are a bit overly risk averse when it comes to sort of sharing their views on these topics and Uh, both in terms of uh, sort of talking about like AI timelines and scenarios and stuff like that. I think often people like, you know, overestimate like how, you know, controversial or, you know, important their their view is. That's one point. And the other thing is in terms of uh, risk aversion in the context of publishing. So uh, there's a lot of people moving into the AI policy area and not all of them have the same goals and, you know, quality standards as we do. That doesn't mean that we should lower ourselves to their level, but I think that raises questions about what the optimal uh, sort of explore-exploit ratio is in the AI community or in the sort of portion of the AI policy community that's concerned with the long term uh, because we don't want to sort of never publish anything and then have the conversation totally be dominated by people with low intellectual standards, but nor do we want to sort of put out bad work. So I don't know exactly how to address that. People, uh, especially people who are concerned about the long term of AI, are becoming fairly cautious about what they what they publish. And I suppose this is true both in the policy and strategy crowd, and I guess also increasingly potentially among the technical crowd that uh, people are cautious about like what code they're publishing because they're worried about how it might be misused. And I guess what we're seeing that today that OpenAI doesn't want to publish the full code uh, for this uh, algorithm for producing uh, seemingly realistic text because uh, you're not. But I guess you want to think about it more before you like put it out because you can't you can't withdraw it. Uh, Amanda, do you just want to comment on uh, I guess like the trade off between I guess making things too secret versus uh, just like everyone running their mouth and (laughs) it being too dangerous yeah so I think this is an area where it's really easy to see the potential harms from uh, you know some publication or something that you're working on or just like some thoughts that you have and to think that the thing then to do is just to kind of close up and say nothing and that that's like going to be the best way to uh, go about things I do think that there's kind of a danger here of like making it seem like this is a field or a domain that's kind of shrouded in secrecy or that's like lots of things are happening behind closed doors that we don't know about when that might not actually be the case. Like there's lots of the problems that we're dealing with and that we're working on. They're just like out in the open. People are talking about them and it's completely fine for that to be the case. And in many ways... I caution against basically the problem that you have is trying to find the balance between these two things, making sure that you're doing kind of responsible releasing of information that you think could be used maliciously. But I think also not not saying absolutely nothing in a way that can also be quite harmful. It's really important that this is a field, I think, that is like credible and trustworthy and honest and where people have some faith that you are making a kind of like genuine effort to evaluate the kinds of things that you're releasing and they sort of trust the underlying mechanisms to be ones where you understand the value of openness 
um, and are weighing that against these other considerations rather than thinking that you're an actor that's just or a person who's just unwilling to say anything or unwilling to say anything honest. And that's extremely harmful. And so, yes, striking that balance is really hard, but it's also really important. I think it's really important relative to doing something like completely uh, shutting down and being overly cautious and saying nothing. So when we think about publication norms, one of the things I think about, and I don't know if this is that widely known about me, but I spent many years as a professional investigative journalist. And when you do that type of journalism, you have this philosophy of find the thing that no one talks about publicly, but everyone talks about privately, and publish some kind of story that relates to that thing. That's just the way that you do the job. And I think that it's weirdly similar in policy for certain things. Something that I've been hearing among policymakers for a long time now is in public, tech companies say, everything's great, la 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 la, aren't we having a good time? And then in private, they'll say to regulators, we really need actual legislation around, say, facial recognition, because we are selling all of this stuff. And we know that it's being used to do things that make our employees uncomfortable. It's difficult for us to restrict ourselves. We would like there to be a conversation about norms and potential regulations that wasn't just us having it. And I think that this is just a general case in AI where you talk to AI researchers privately, and if they work with very, very large models, they'll say, yes, from time to time, I find this stuff a little perturbing. Or from time to time, I think about how good this stuff is getting, and I wonder about the implications. And then in public, there's been a lot of challenges associated with talking about these downsides, because you don't want to cause another AI winter. You don't want to be seen as, you know, being chicken little and saying the sky is falling when when it may not be. And you don't want to, if you're a corporate researcher, run afoul of your company's communication sort of policies which will typically encourage you or force you to avoid talking about downsides and so with our work here on language and on publication norms in general the idea is to go and get that conversation that we know is happening privately and force it into a public domain by doing something that invites those people to debate it and invites actually frankly everyone who has different opinions here to now have a case study that they can talk about and i'm frankly i would be excited if all that came out of this was the whole community had a discussion and said we were ever so slightly too extreme in this instance that would actually be a good thing because it would have helped calibrate the whole community around what it really thinks and would give us loads of evidence now my expectation is what might happen is people will talk about what we've done and then when they do their own releases we'll maybe be able to do their own forms of release experiment while pointing to us as the person that sort of went first and maybe we de-risked that for them. I think also improving the conversation around publication norms so that it's no longer one where it's like either you're completely in favor of everything being open source or you're completely closed and you don't see any of the benefits of you know openness. I think showing that we are as an organization sensitive to all of the upsides of openness in research you know it pushes forward the kind of scientific boundaries it gets more people into the field it allows people to rerun your experiments like we're really sensitive to the fact that there are lots of extreme benefits to being really open with your research and then you just have to counter that against you know potential misuse or 
unintended side effects or bad social uh, impacts of what you're doing. And ideally moving the conversation to one where it's not like you either have to be completely for or against complete openness, but to one where it's just like, yeah, there are just like pros and cons, there are considerations for and against, and it's fine to have a position that's somewhere in the middle um, and to favor something that's like responsible publication and finding out exactly what the sweet spots is there is like quite difficult, but I think important. My impression from outside is that AI as a technical field is extremely in favor of kind of publishing results and like sharing sharing uh, code so that other people can, can replicate uh, what you do. Is this one of the first cases where people have published a result and not released the, the code that would allow people to repl- replicate it? And, and I guess it sounds like perhaps you're, you're, maybe you're trying to set an example that will encourage other people to like think more carefully about this in future. This is not the first case in which people haven't published all of their results and model and code and so forth. Uh, what's different is that the decision was... A, sort of made explicitly on the basis of these uh, misuse considerations, and B, it was communicated in a transparent way that uh, was aimed at fostering debate. So it wasn't that you know no one's ever worried about the social consequences of publishing before, but we took the additional step of trying to establish it as an explicit norm uh, at AI Labs. Yeah, the way I think of it is that we built a lawnmower. We know that some percentage of the time this lawnmower drops a bit of oil on the on the lawn, which you don't want to happen. Now, most lawnmower manufacturers would not lead their press strategy with, we've made a slightly leaky mower. That's sort of what we did here. And I think the idea is to see what happens if you talk to the press about that aspect, because we know that they think that aspect is undercovered. So if we can go over to them and say, you know, we know that you think this aspect is undercovered, here's a way for you to talk about it, and here's a way for you to talk to a character that's now animating that issue for you, maybe we can get a better discussion to come out the other side. That's the hypothesis. Yeah, and I think that one thing that's worth noting is it's important to be as honest as you can be in this domain and just in life in general. And I think here, honesty is what we've kind of aimed for in that we're saying like we don't feel comfortable like releasing uh, the model but we're telling you that like and I think that's like also important it's not something where we're trying to actively deceive people or we're trying to like be more closed I think one way in which you can be honest is just telling people what your intentions are why you're thinking about it and how you're thinking about it so that even if they disagree they can see your decision process roughly and like why you're doing what you're doing Um, and I think that's important. Yeah, I read in uh, one of uh, the documents on your website, possibly it was the charter that you are open to basically closing things up if that seems like the the, the safe approach, that we might want to get to a future where like, most AI labs are just not publishing most of the techniques that, that they have available because they're concerned about, about how it's going to get applied. What do, what do you think of the odds that that would be a, a good future, one where like on, on the technical side, it's it's mostly only, uh, you know, I guess, experts at kind of vetted labs who, who are being given the, the, the cutting edge uh, techniques? I think you're going to have a chunk of AI research that goes a bit quiet just because it has to. There's a good reason today why it's relatively hard to read decent papers about gain-of-function research, right? It's relatively hard for me to work out how to make a flu virus 10 times worse. And I think that there's a good reason for that. You don't want it to be easy for people to acquire knowledge like that. The challenge of AI is going to be drawing that box around the stuff that you want to be kind of a bit more private that needs to be the smallest possible box or else you kind of take out chunks of science and and shared progress with it 
I think that some of the ways to get more information here are to have more organizations just do things like this where we actually tag it publicly as we're doing this release thing and part of why we're doing it is to see how people react and get more evidence. The other thing is to have governments be slightly more involved in thinking about this in the same way that you know governments got quite involved in stuff like gain-of-function research stuff like CRISPR stuff like nuclear technology because they saw it as being critical and having potentially critical knock-on effects you can expect similar communities of shared concern to form here okay I want to talk for a little bit about uh, arms races and, and how to how to prevent them uh, I recently read an, an article from uh, the Center for New American Security called Understanding China's uh, AI Strategy, uh, which I guess seemed to indicate both that China was uh, quite serious about investing uh, heavily in, in uh, you know, reaching the, the cutting edge of, of, of machine learning. Uh, but also it seemed like they were making noises, at least like some people in the Chinese government were making noises that they were like quite concerned about uh, arms races uh, between uh, China and, and I guess uh, other countries or, or other labs. Where do we stand in terms of like arms races between countries or different AI labs? Uh, like people managing to, to coordinate to, to, to keep that under control and keep safety a significant focus? So one view I have, which is you know not widely shared, is that there is uh, not nearly as much sort of quote-unquote arms race behavior as one might expect. So first of all, what do I mean by that? I mean that, for example, if the U.S. was trying to be as competitive as possible in AI, it would be doing something about its immigration system. But it's not because it can't because there are political constraints. So I think that's a sign that not all actors are unified, coherent, uh, you know, sort of utility maximizers. Uh, that you know, it, it's important not to overgeneralize about you know what what different actors are doing or thinking. Yeah, and I think one thing that worries me is when people try and take the analogy of like arms races between states and apply it over to private developers. So like at the moment, a lot of AI development is not happening um, at the state level, it's happening at private companies. And I think people can take this model of kind of an adversarial race between different states over militaristic AI and just say, well, something very similar must be happening in the private domain. When actually development races like happen all the time, you get kind of R&D races happening in within a given domain when people are making similar systems. These races don't have to be um, kind of like races to the bottom. Uh, you know, so people have worried about the po- prospect of something like a race to the bottom on safety with AI, where people don't try and constrain their development in a way that ensures that the system is like safe and beneficial. And it's just very unclear to me that the way that an AI development race in the private domain will or should happen is one in which uh, that uh, is the kind of ultimate target. I think instead you can have collaborative norms between private developers that ensure that although you're going to race to develop a given system, you're going to all mutually make sure that the systems that you're developing have a really good impact on the world and that you've made sure that um, you've tested it to show that it's like safe and secure. And a lot of races in the private domain have that structure. You know, people generally don't race to build a plane as quickly as possible. They have like extremely rigorous safety standards on what they build. Um, so even though you've got different airline companies um, competing with one another, you're not seeing something like this uh, terrible race to the bottom on safety in those domains. And I don't see strong reasons to be pessimistic about that occurring in the AI domain. So I'm really interested in this this worry, but I do think that in many ways we can't take this analogy of historical arms races and necessarily apply it either to military AI and states or to like private AI developers in the way that people seem to sometimes kind of quickly do or quickly think that we can. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a, your, one of your main research focuses is races and I guess the, the game theory of, of, of arms races. Do you want to talk about yeah, what, what, what you're looking into and uh, maybe what, what findings there are, although it's, I guess, early days? Yeah, so I think both Miles and I have been thinking about this for a while. I think that it can be very easy to look at a development race and think that you're looking at something highly adversarial where both parties just want to win at kind of any cost where they're willing to make any trade-off but actually there are you know game theory can be kind of useful here it can sometimes be a little bit um you know idealizing but you can learn some really important lessons there of the form hey look at this payoff structure that is the one that you're kind of assuming when you assume that a race is adversarial like that I can make really mild adjustments to that payoff structure and I suddenly get, I still get a race, but I get one that's much more collaborative and where the outcome that I expect is like much, much better. And so you might superficially look at a scenario and think, oh gosh, that looks really adversarial. But when I actually like look at the nature of the payoffs, I realize, oh, I should actually just expect for people to work together to make sure that systems are safe here. And so I've been trying to identify some of the kind of key properties that races have um, that would mean that they are more collaborative and also some of the key kind of properties of the world, like, you know, can people bargain or can they communicate with one another? And I think some of the kind of features that I anticipate occurring in AI development are really conducive towards collaborative races more than kind of adversarial races. So examples are like if a technology has high upsides that are shared, that is something that decreases adversarialism. If it's the case that the downsides of developing something that's unsafe are also very low and also shared, that's like another feature that increases the chance that you would have collaborative races. And I think we see a lot of these features in AI development. Um, And also we have a lot of the mechanisms that make collaboration easier. So even if you were to worry that something was going to be adversarial, uh, it can actually end up being the case that you have mechanisms just to make sure that that doesn't happen. And often these mechanisms have been successful in other domains. And so I don't see a reason to not also be optimistic about trying to apply them here. What kinds of mechanisms are you thinking of? Yeah, so we're actually running a workshop in April on this topic and trying to take a sort of you know, broader perspective than just AI. Uh, so I think, you know, while there are AI specific issues, uh, when thinking about arms races and cooperation and so forth, it's also important to look at lessons from, say, nuclear arms control, where they've invested a ton of money and time and expertise into coming up with ways to build trust between adversarial parties and work out, uh, you know, monitoring systems, you know, interviews, export controls, satellite and so forth. I think it's we're at an early stage in terms of understanding what the what the analogous tools would be in the context of AI, but broadly, I think there are a few buckets. So there are sort of software-related tools, so interpretability, verification, uh, encryption, and you know to allow you know decentralized access and uh, deal with privacy issues, etc. Um, then there's sort of a hardware bucket of sort of monitoring computing capacity and who has access to the sort of most powerful inputs, you know, which might be uh, you know. Uh, computing power itself or things like data and so forth. And then finally, there's institutional tools and mechanisms uh, that involve building trust between individuals as well as organizations, setting up incentives so that people, even if they can't see exactly what's going on in the latest AI system, they're confident that the incentives of the people at the organization are aligned in the right sort of way. The way I think about it is that there are sort of at least a couple of types of interventions here. On the one hand, there are ways of increasing trust between different parties because if you're more confident that other people are going to act well, this just gives you a greater incentive to act well. 
I guess another set of interventions uh, actually just change the payoff structure in a way that makes it more conducive to cooperation. Those are like a little bit harder to have any kind of influence over. But I think those are the kind of things that you see happening when instead of just having trust building between different organizations, you have, for example, like uh, an ombudsperson that um, you can go to. Or, you know, if you have a regulation that just says like you can't, in fact, uh, release a system until you've established to this degree, like that it is safe and secure. And so I think we're focusing a lot on like increasing confidence that everyone is going to coordinate to avoid really bad outcomes. Um, but also there are probably other interventions that um, are going to like arise in the future of that are actually just trying to change the payoff structure in a way that really prevents it from being in anyone's interest to develop uh, unsafe technology. Yeah, so as I understand it, uh, OpenAI has written into its charter that if there's another organization that's getting close to developing you know, a very advanced AI, then you won't race with them. You'll just like try to basically join them and help them to succeed, which I guess is like a mechanism that you've had to like try to avoid sparing like competition and, 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 and an arms race. Do you think that that is like a, enough to make sure that OpenAI doesn't, doesn't encourage uh, competitive behavior? And are there other like concrete kind of steps or yeah, concrete things that need to happen in order to, to uh, just make arms races less likely? I, I think there's a shared field of information hazard and evaluating releases in themselves that I'd expect to lead to a community of shared concern forming between OpenAI and other AI research organizations. So I'm pretty optimistic that we can get to a world where we can host a workshop, you know, in a year or two on like issues X, Y, Z in AI research. How do we optimize publication for scientific progression while maximizing safety like i feel like that's that's just a community that can be formed and those are the sorts of concrete things we can do along the way to help us it's hard to talk about super specific steps with regard to something with such uncertain timelines but the other thing you can imagine us doing which the policy team already is beginning to do here is creating real controls over the organization of OpenAI itself that actually apply you know they apply within the bureaucracy they're integrated up into like board level decisions they place constraints on other teams i think that we view that and getting that to work as a research project in itself because if we can't get 100 or 120 people to agree on certain constraints being placed on their own private development that would be poor evidence for us being able to get the entire world to do that I think there are other mechanisms that will hopefully help with this. Um, so I think generally having organizations that are pretty uh, mission focused, where their mission is good and is about creating like a beneficial AI is extremely helpful because it means that as someone at that organization, you don't necessarily see uh, your role as being just promoting the interests of the organization, but rather promoting the interests of its mission generally. And so that means working with other organizations and people at other organizations insofar as it pushes forward, like the mission of the organization. That's going to be a little bit hard if you have, say, a company who's like a public company whose goal is to make a lot of money, then because it's like hard for them. It's, like, it's kind of written into their charter that their goal isn't just to like uh, benefit everyone although I suppose like perhaps they could have a vote on the, of the board to like say no actually we're going to have a different goal for this project ideally often these things also like won't necessarily conflict like if your goal is to make sure that um, systems are safe and beneficial that's generally in the interest of like most developers to like ensure that that's the case so I like to think when it comes to ensuring positive outcomes collaboration between people and groups that is uh, conducive to that um, is just basically going to be in the interest both of of like all organizations involved maybe that's overly optimistic but that's my view 
Do, do you uh, think also about a kind of global cooperation and inter- international cooperation and like uh, how to avoid militarization of AI or is that uh, kind of like getting a bit beyond the remit of open AI? It's definitely in the remit. I mean, we want to make sure that AI benefits all of humanity. Uh, in terms of, you know, what the right units or level of analysis is, is it countries or companies or public-private partnerships or individuals? I think that's sort of uncertain and partially something we can influence. Like if we wanted to gov- governments to be in- more involved in a certain way and developed a consensus around it, we could do that. So I think it's important to sort of be aware that who the actors are is something we can influence. That's you know one point. And so a second point to consider is that we don't really know to what extent the mechanisms of trust building will vary depending on who the actors are. So at this stage, I, for the purpose of you know planning my research, I'm trying to keep you know as much option value as possible in terms of you know am I thinking about militaries interacting with militaries or militaries interacting with companies and so forth and look at it more from a mechanism perspective. Uh, and I think that's sort of why my and Amanda's research is complementary because Amanda's thinking more in terms of interests and incentives, and I'm thinking about sort of tools that could potentially intervene on those incentives. And I think it's like not obvious in advance, sort of you know how those map onto each other. Can I say something counterintuitive? and odd which might make miles and or amanda or both of them slightly mad at me i think that we don't talk enough about militaries and ai like we talk about militaries and ai in terms of value judgments about what we do or don't want militaries to do with ai i'm interested in organizations like OpenAI and others talking about how when militaries eventually decide to do something the ai community is in a position to make whatever it is that those militaries do safe in a way that actually makes sense to the militaries. I I think that we are currently potentially under-investing in that out of a a reasonable hypothesis that if we are going to talk to militaries, there's a lot of information that could leak over to them and there's a lot of information hazard there. I recognize those concerns, but I think if we basically just never talk to the militaries, essentially treat the the militaries like an adversary in their own right, then when the time comes that like the US and China are creating highly autonomous drone swarms in the South China Sea, and we have certain ideas around safety that we really think they should embed into those platforms, they may not listen to us. And that would actually be uniquely destabilizing and maybe one of the places where these arms race dynamics could rapidly crystallize. So I think it's important for people to bear in mind that there are already kind of stigmas emerging in the AI community about what is and isn't acceptable speech with regard to AI policy and AI actors. And we should just be cognizant of that and try to talk about all of the different actors inclusively. I know that some people uh, are a little bit freaked out that uh, getting AI military systems in use could make states more uh, willing to engage in uh, attacks because it would mean that it's only kind of machines that are getting destroyed or equipment that's getting destroyed rather than rather than people dying. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a that's a realistic possibility? To be honest, that doesn't sound so intuitive to me because I don't think that's the main reason that states don't attack one another. But I mean, more people die because AK-47s exist. I think there's actually good evidence that if you make stuff to hurt other people really, 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 really cheap, more people end up using it. Um, I think that that to some extent is separate to these specific worries about AI. Like for me, what's called a lethal autonomous weapon, it sits on a spectrum from today's technology and extends into the future. There isn't really a hard and fast point at which it becomes an AI weapon as opposed to just 
a military device that's got iteratively better and more independent. You know, by some definition, landmines are kind of like a lethal autonomous weapon in the sense they're autonomous and they're lethal and they're a weapon. But they're not AI, are they? And so, so I think that because we do not want to hurt other people, I think the issue of militaries using AI is kind of very hard to think clearly about because your main thoughts are that's just going to hurt other people. And I think it sort of breaks your ability to think in that domain. I don't have a super constructed point to make here because it's broken my own thinking to think in this domain. For my part, I just think that a lot of these things are just empirical questions to some degree. There are lots of areas where people can work here. And one of them is trying to assess how these things are going to influence military outcomes in potentially unanticipated ways, you know, like what does the effect of uncertainty have on likeliness of going to war? How much do you expect future wars to be ones in which it's easier to verify whether one side will win or not? And does that in expectation decrease the amount of war that you have? Is it the case that if you expect to have fewer casualties because you have more autonomous weapons that you'll see like a reduction in the amounts of wars that you have? Because this is in fact currently something that massively prevents countries from going to war. I think these are kind of open questions that one has to just kind of approach looking at the current evidence that we have. I think what Jack said is also like very true, but for this, my kind of overall summary is like it is an open question. Ultimately, our goal is to get lots of great colleagues for for, for you three, uh, I guess either at OpenAI or in this broader AI policy and uh, strategy ecosystem. Uh, so we want to spend yeah the last perhaps uh, 40 minutes that we have here t- trying to basically offer advice to listeners who might be able to usefully contribute to this whole field. I'm going to make a very specific plug, which is incredibly biased. So I'll lay out the bias and then I'll describe the, the plug. So the bias is, in my spare time, I write an AI newsletter called Import AI. So I am biased towards newsletters being useful. So there's my bias. The plug is that we've seen a number of people start to write policy-specific AI newsletters. There's a newsletter on European AI from Charlotte Sticks. There's a newsletter on Indian AI from someone at the Berkman Institute at Harvard that's just started. Uh, my colleague Matthew Van der Meer, who I believe is at the Future of Humanity Institute, writes a policy section within my newsletter, Import AI. I know that any congressional staffer, any staffer for any politician in any country I've been to has actually made mention of needing more materials to read to get them into AI and AI policy. And I think this is a very high leverage area where if you are if you are interested in AI policy, just trying to produce something that's useful to those people, which summarizes AI and its relevance to policy within a specific tightly scoped domain will not only give you the ability to calibrate your own thinking and generate evidence, but it will allow you to make friends with the very people you may want to work with. I think it's unbelievably useful and high leverage and everyone should do this more. So the, so the cutting edge is, uh, is email. Uh, in, in the glorious AI future, the cutting edge is text-based emails that have no images in them. Yes. I guess maybe you'll be able to get your AI systems to produce these summaries rather than having to write them yourself. We've tried that, and uh, we have tried it on on the newsletter. The, the bad issue here is that it's entirely wrong. Um, so I think that makes it meaningfully worse than what I write, but there, there may be a crossover point. Yeah, it's not clear how useful fictional uh, <laughs> newsletters <laughs> are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you want to write your own fictional newsletter. Um. <laughs> I, I would read the Earth 2 newsletter. The Alt AI newsletter, and it's just parallel. Uni- we should do this. We should do parallel universe reports. 
and just combine it with existing results so that it's like the unicorns uh, have now developed AI. As you can see, everyone, you should you should join this field because they have great banter. <laughs> so Amanda, last time I spoke to you, which was, I guess was only six, not, not even six months ago, uh, you, you were just finishing your PhD in philosophy uh, doing infinite ethics. And I guess, uh, yeah, now you're like pretty much at the, at the center of this of, the, of this field of, of research. Do you want to talk a bit about like uh, your, your, your journey into getting into, into uh, AI strategy and, and, and how you're finding it and, ha- and how you did the transition? Yeah, so I had been working on some questions relating to like AI policy before I finished uh, my PhD because it was an area of interest. I then took a kind of opportunity to do a project at uh, OpenAI on these topics and used that as time to sort of learn a lot more about this space and about related fields and then hopefully did some useful work um, and hopefully will do further useful work in the future. I basically found that I thought a lot of the problems here are extremely important. They require a certain level of willingness to investigate multiple fields because there isn't like an existing literature that's huge and can really like hold your hand through everything. And so I saw that as something that was like quite interesting and exciting because I just like learning about new things. But it does mean that for a lot of people, I think it can be a little bit overwhelming. And I think it honestly takes a long time before it stops being kind of overwhelming. The amount of like additional information you need to understand and know to like make progress in some of these questions. It can feel kind of like you're trying to quickly get a PhD in seven different subjects because they're all relevant uh, to what you're doing so you're like yeah I need to know game theory I need to understand international relations I need to know how businesses work I need to understand technical AI and so that's like the challenge and I suppose like that's mainly what I've been doing uh, is both working in this area and also trying to like acquire those seven PhDs. And to Amanda's point you know we do have questions here like who's the best uh, economist who knows about game theory and international relations we could get to like read our paper or I'll come back from Washington and be like Who's the best person we can talk to about CRISPR or biomedicine or the horsepox virus? Or you get the picture. It's it's such a interesting domain because the problems that AI involve basically crystallize unsolved problems from a whole bunch of other fields. So we need to map the examples of other fields and then maybe by solving some of these problems in the AI domain, we'll develop solutions that can be ported back out to some of those fields that we've taken the problems from. I think for that... That in itself is an exciting idea to me also. Uh, so let's work a little bit uh, chronologically through uh, through the, someone's career here. I guess if someone was, was fairly young, do you have any advice for, for what they should be doing uh, early on in their career uh, in, order to, in order to prepare like what they should be studying or reading and who they should be meeting? I mean, this is sort of a high-level suggestion that I think people should not be as risk-averse as they often are when it comes to reaching out to people and applying to places when there aren't you know formal job uh availabilities and so forth i think generally it's sort of a fast moving field and like reaching out to people um you know independent of whether you think they're like too senior or whatever um is something that i think is very fruitful and i've had a lot of you know fruitful conversations with you know relatively junior people who just reach out to me by email and i think more people should do that well i mean i don't know how scalable it is for a bunch of people to email me but people should do similar things Yeah, I think one question is something like, you know, what should people be doing generally in terms of like studying and getting to know things? And that is tricky here because I think there's lots of useful fields. And in some ways, that's great. It means that perhaps, you know, you can uh, contribute to this uh, field uh, from a kind of myriad of different backgrounds. Um, I do think that 
you know, doing a little bit of technical work in computer science is always helpful. And some of the other fields that we've talked about are also helpful. But if I look at people who have worked uh, in this field, often it starts by them simply finding a problem that is really interesting to them that is pretty relevant uh, and just writing something on it, for example, um, and, you know, forming a view on that. And then I think reaching out to people can be really fruitful because you've already shown both interest and roughly like what you can do in terms of the types of research that you're uh that uh, you're engaged with. So I think I would actually, insofar as that seems to be the way that a lot of people uh, are entering the field, it's maybe something that's worth considering um, is just like actually do some work, see if you like it, see if you feel like you're good at it and see if other people like that work. I'd give a a special vote to just trying to show thinking with regard to some of the materials outputted by AI organizations. Now that could be reading some of the say, blogs from Microsoft calling for federal regulators to look at facial recognition, or it could be looking at Google's governance of AI paper, or it could be looking at the stuff that, you know, we and other institutions put out about the malicious uses of AI, and then responding to it, because none of those things are entirely correct documents or blogs. They have points which you can disagree with. And I think the easiest way for us as a team to better understand how to advise people and to know where they might fit in is to get a sense of their ability to synthesize stuff in this domain and identify the kind of logical inconsistencies because that seems so important. And I think that people underestimate how valuable it can be to produce an example of their thinking because in this domain, we are all like overstretched. There are way too many problems to work on and we have enough trouble just scaling our own sort of hiring processes to keep up with inbound so you can make it easier on people like us and others by producing one or two kind of opinionated outputs in the domain that you want to work in what skills or temperament or abilities are required to you think be a be a good ai policy or strategy expert and and, and usefully contribute here i think humbleness is pretty useful because i think one of the natures of policy is that you get to talk to people who've done huge amounts of things or who represent very very large numbers of people and you have to recognize that your concerns may seem very very important to you but to this person they may also be wondering about how they keep like 50 million people fed or something so how do you talk to these people in a way that feels reasonable to them seems like a challenge in itself i think it's also really valuable to have a good synthesizing brain like if you like looking at multiple bits of information in multiple domains and bringing it all together to develop some kind of theory of the world or theory of change, I think you'll do better in AI as a consequence. First, I just want to echo what Amanda was saying about you know the value of doing some thinking and coming to people with opinions and reactions of your own. And you know, I'm not sure what the optimal way to balance that is with the other point I was saying earlier about sort of not being too risk averse. But you know, obviously, there's some some trade offs. I think generally people should you know not be afraid to sort of you know reach out and get feedback and you know circulate ideas. But obviously, like if if you're reaching out to like an academic and they've published some stuff and you might read it eventually, you should read it before you email them. I think stuff like that. I think is is you know I'm not sure there's a well written list of those sorts of norms somewhere, but someone should do that. Other thoughts, I think, generally surrounding yourself with people who are better in some way or more knowledgeable in some way is super useful. I think at like OpenAI, for example, it, it can be true, uh, you know, within the organization that everyone is exceeded by someone else in some dimension. And like, you know, there's sort of no one who strictly dominates everyone else in terms of knowledge. And I think that is sort of part of the what the, you know, 
the mix of AI policy stuff is like and is sort of necessary given that it's a messy interdisciplinary problem. So this can be a like somewhat uh, uncomfortable uh, kind of question, but how do people tell if they're uh, smart enough, basically? And are there any kind of uh, red flags that people can notice that would suggest that they're just they're not, not going to be such a good fit uh, for, the, for, the, for the field? I've always found that a good way to tell if I understand something is if I can go up to an expert in that domain and ask them a question that is a relevant and sophisticated question. That usually suggests to me that I've read enough of the literature and internalized it enough that I can ask them something that means something. Uh, I actually knew that I really wanted to get more into AI after I ran into Ilya Sutskever, who's the co-founder of OpenAI, at some press dinner in San Francisco in 2014. And I asked him how he thought uh, neural Turing machines and other differentiable memory systems for AI uh, components may or may not scale. And he kind of went, who are you? <laughs> and like stared at me for a bit. And I was a journalist at the time. But that, that told me that I had understood it sufficiently to ask a person like Ilya, who is a domain expert, a question that they thought was actually relevant. Right. And I think that's a tell. So coming back to my point earlier about having people go and look at outputs like Google's governance of AI paper, malicious actors, other stuff, and find the point where they have questions or perhaps disagree would be really helpful. Because if you can produce an output that comes out of a reasonable disagreement with something in the literature, it probably means you've understood it. If you've read the literature top to bottom and you can't find any points where you personally disagree, it feels unlikely that you've understood it sufficiently well. Yeah, so I think also we've been focusing a lot on research positions here. And I do think that as the field grows, there's going to be room for like more positions of different uh, sorts. And so one thing that is worth noting is if you feel like your skill set is some is, you know, for example, you're really good at communicating um, and you're really good at like synthesizing, you know, the kind of like latest innovations and, and talking about it to a public audience. That's probably going to be a skill set that's really useful. So don't necessarily rule yourself out if you're like, well, actually, I don't enjoy that kind of research or I simply uh, don't do it. I think that there's a lot of room for like uh, other roles here, hopefully in the future. I do think that just trying it is like a good idea and then getting feedback and hopefully you'll be surrounded by the kind of people who will give you honest feedback. And so if they're like, actually, it seems like that you're not suited to this kind of problem. Also, don't take that as an insult. And part of me is like these problems are of a very particular kind. They involve a lot of moving parts. I find a lot of that like quite difficult. And so it's like you can be like amazing at research in one area and then just find that you really struggle in another area. Um, And so try it, get feedback, and don't worry too much if it turns out that like this isn't like what you want to work in, I guess. Just a quick comment on like different levels of expertise in different areas. I think, you know, there's no, you know, perfect solution to like, should I spend my time thinking about policy stuff or figuring out the state of the art or implementing, you know, deep learning models or trying, you know, someone else's better model. Like, I don't think there's a clear answer for sort of what what the optimal use of your time is. But, you know, some heuristics I think about are that, first of all, you know, it's important to distinguish different types of expertise. So there's a sociologist named Harry Collins who distinguishes distinguishes interactional expertise from contributory expertise. And what Jack was talking about earlier about sort of like, you know, getting Ilya to be like, what? Like, you actually know what you're talking about. That's sort of uh, interactional expertise uh, where you're able to sort of pass the Turing test at a conference as <laughs> as as being uh, someone from that area. And I think in my experience, I have sort of incrementally been trying to pass that 
you know, test better and better by going to, you know, dozens of AI conferences and reading a lot over the years, but there's no sort of, you know, definitive endpoint unless I were to sort of decide I wanted to be an actual technical researcher, which would then go into contributory expertise uh, mode where you're actually advancing the state of the art. So I think, you know, it's important to think in terms of those distinctions and, and like different thresholds of expertise. So, you know, in some cases, you might want to have an expertise for signaling reasons or for networking reasons. And in another case, it might be because it's actually useful for your work. So I think, you know, those are different motivations and important to be clear about that. This isn't a huge field at the moment, or at least like jobs that are specifically focused on, on AI policy. So are there any positions that are kind of natural stepping stones that people can take between what they're doing now and, and ultimately like entering that field specifically? Uh, I think that project manager type positions are probably useful here. I mean, that's certainly a need that we've observed that we likely have here at OpenAI. And I think it's the same, you know, for policy, you're going to be putting events together, you're also going to be creating processes like information hazard or safety reviews that need to actually be run within an org and need to need to work properly. And that's the sort of skill where you can have a lot of interest in AI, you can have worked in a completely different field, but you can work as a project manager and self-educate during that and perhaps then make a transition to like a research assistant role or something like that. I, I'm quite bullish on on that sort of role being a good path in because I'm, as Miles said, I'm like a big believer here and and I think Amanda's observed this in in learning by osmosis and getting yourself just into the community so that you can be surrounded by those conversations is kind of half the challenge. How important is it to have a technical background, do you think? I have a degree in creative writing. So I, so I don't know. I'm not a good person to ask because I've, I've self-educated in this domain, which was admittedly like much harder than having all of the equipment. I would have done it quicker if I had a slightly different background or I'd invested slightly early earlier in my career in like a, a compressed base of like stats and math rather than having to self-teach. But I'm pretty confident you can self-teach to a reasonable level of competency. I think the the thing that is important to have is like uh, excitement about an interest in uh, the field and like the work that's being done. So one thing that, yeah, is quite noticeable is that like all of us in our spare time in the past have like uh, either like self-educated in this and in some cases just on an ongoing basis, like actually engage in like trying to like, you know, build our own things in, even though we're not like technical researchers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think... You, you definitely want to have that. You don't want to be unexcited about AI uh, and go into AI policy. Yeah, so Jack mentioned communication and translation as, as sort of a big part of, you know, what policy people do. And I think that's uh, really true. And, you know, just to speak from my own experience, I found that having a lot of experience working in D.C. Uh, with policymakers and, and being forced to, like, compress the you know key takeaways of various areas into you know layman's terms was very useful preparatory experience as well as academic research requiring to write for different audiences both for like you know technical papers as well as uh, you know broader communication like blogging tweeting all of those things I think are useful for calibrating how you express things to different audiences. Yeah, I guess I just want to uh, qualify perhaps a bit that I guess all three of you are kind of researchers at what I guess is kind of a think tank focused on this area. And I suppose there's like a there's a there's a kind of a larger attack service uh, on on, the, on this problem, which would include like going into government, which might require quite different skills or, you know, even trying to become a politician or something like that. Do, do any of you want to comment on kind of the, the, the broader picture so we so we don't so we don't lose that uh, while we're just talking about kind of the, the roles that you're closest to? Well, I mean, everyone needs communication skills, you know, whether even if you're just working in a lab and, you know, the three of us need to communicate with each other. So I think, you know, no one can sort of get off with not being able to think or communicate clearly. I think everyone needs to work on that. But Jack can comment on more who needs what. 
as far as I can work out, a universal requirement is being able to work on multiple things in, in parallel because policy is so fundamentally about the world around you. It could be the legislative environment around you. It could be the mood of the public. In our case, it could be the specific ideas that seem increasingly relevant or less relevant due to technical progress. But the world will just decide to kill your idea one day. And it won't like care that you've worked a hard, really hard on it. Like a legislator will not like the bill, so the bill disappears. You know, the public will suddenly be exposed to a news story that biases them against your political position and so on. So you need to have that grit and willingness to hurt, take a bunch of bets and uh, not get too upset when some of those bets inevitably uh, disappear or fail. What do you think of as the as, as the biggest bottlenecks to to progress in the in the field? Are there kind of clear bottlenecks, or is it just uh, we need we need to progress uh, across the board? I think it'd be helpful to have more institutions. Like we are an organization trying to create this field along with our peers at places like DeepMind and other AI developers. There are also people coming into it from more traditional policy environments and or you know traditional think tanks, but what we sort of lack are big coordinating institutions. You know, partnership on AI uh, may sort of scale to do this eventually. We're in the stages now where it's kind of, it's quite promising, but it's it's one that should be among many. And what I'd really like is to have big institutions focused on AI policy that are somewhat academic in flavor and which are also quite linked to governments in a bunch of geographies, because that seems like it would make coordination easier give us an easier time to get calibrated and would sort of provide a more natural route into AI policy for people who are coming up through academia, especially because then we can just sort of divert into this. I think that and increasingly, I hope that there's going to be more sort of material for people who are interested in the field as it grows, because one of the key issues is at the moment, you know, if you go into any other field, you know, if you if you study like mathematics or you study kind of anything in university, there's this just like, you know, set curriculum that really like guides you through it initially. And that is an excellent way of getting people to come through into like the kind of fields that require those skills. Whereas at the moment, there isn't such a kind of pipeline for people working in AI policy. And I hope that that will be something that people who are currently working on this will basically like lay the groundwork for going forward. So my ideal would be in not too long, it isn't in fact hard to learn about this as a field on its own because there will just be material that you can just like look at and roughly um, get kind of an education in it. Um, So I think the lack of that material is like making things a little bit harder at the moment. I guess it seemed like a couple of years ago, one of the key skills that was needed was kind of the audacity to go in and tackle questions that are somewhat poorly formed where it's like, it's not clear even what an answer would be. To what extent is that still the case, do you think? Or or if if it ever was? I think it's becoming less true. As we said, you know, like as problems become identified you still kind of want that skill in the sense that I think a useful skill is being able to point out when you think that things are poorly specified Uh, you shouldn't expect a field to like have to have everything in order and to be identifying the right problems or the right solutions completely and so I think you do also still you want a little bit of that but ideally I also want it to be the case that people don't have to have that skill going forward pushing on from preparing and, uh, and who should go into it to, to actual jobs. Uh, this is perhaps a, an, another a question that could be uncomfortable, but like what are kind of the ideal, most influential uh, like roles with, within this entire field where, you know, having someone, having someone excellent really does improve the prospects? Can it be a role that does not exist yet? Yes. Okay, so the UK has the Government Office of AI, 
which is actually located, if I recall correctly, within the cabinet office. So it's it's pretty empowered and it's pretty connected. You know, some countries have their own minister of AI. I think that we could get, in the same way heads of state today have a science and technology advisor, I think if AI continues to grow in importance and significance, we could imagine having an AI advisor be its own role there on here's exactly what you, Mrs. or Mr. or Ms. politician, need to think about with regard to AI. That seems like it could be uniquely high leverage, especially as we think about things like the dynamics of competition between nations and these people needing to take highly consequential decisions which have a race component. You probably want there to be a person in the room who says, ooh, that's not such a good idea, you know. I think that role should exist and probably will. Yeah, are there any other uh, like vacancies that, that exist at the moment that you, that you might want to uh, highlight as things that people should seriously consider uh, applying for? I mean, what, what, what positions are available at, at OpenAI, for example? We're currently hiring for research assistants and research scientists. So research assistants are designed for people who either kind of have significant experience in other domains and want to transition in into AI policy. And this role gives them the chance to work with our research scientists on defined projects while developing their own subject matter expertise to empower them to go and be their own researchers eventually. And research scientists are people who are going to go and carry out a specific research endeavor within AI as a whole. So we've, we've tried to create these two roles. We are probably going to create a project manager role as well, because as I said, we felt that need. And that will be, of the three, the most, I think of you can think of as accessible from people outside of AI. It will be most friendly to the people with the broadest amount of experience. Can people without much uh, relevant experience uh, just, just apply for these roles and, and potentially get a position? Or is it gonna, is it, does it have to be a more, more gradual uh, transition than that, where they kind of prove themselves by, by, through, through what they've written? So we're not yet at the point where we have a super coherent sort of career trajectory, but we're starting to get to that point in the sense that there are now, in a way that there weren't before, opportunities to get like a PhD funded uh, to work on actually relevant AI policy topics that you might be interested in at FHI at Oxford, for example. Um, likewise, there are starting to be internships and research assistants and various sort of junior positions that could scale up. But in terms of, you know, what is the optimal trajectory, I think it's sort of, I think it would probably be like irresponsible for us to be too prescriptive at this point because, you know, there's uncertainties around, you know, time timing of these issues and like how much lock-in there will be, how, you know, where to go on the explore-exploit spectrum and you know, how grad school might fit into that and so forth. So I think it's it's kind of hard to give super uh, generic advice. Given that quite a lot of material in this area isn't isn't yet published, is there any easy way for people to get get up to speed on what's known? And maybe is, is, is there a conference at this point uh, for, for, for this field yet? And might, might there be one in, in a year or two? There should be. I would, I mean, I, I don't know what Miles and Amanda think. It would be so much simpler if there was one place we could all go and hang out and talk. I currently feel like we are composing communities out of other bigger ones, but there's definitely enough interest here that we can create our own shared thing. I would love for people to, especially some of the kind of listeners and and readers of this, to think about what such a conference might look like, how it could be made most useful, and how you could create really good incentives for people like not just OpenAI, but Google, and also people like the National Institute for Standards and Technology, NIST, in the US, to all support it. Because there's definitely room, and I'm sure that there's something which could be quite different to current conferences. 
this could be a good way into AI policy for the right event coordinator or manager if they can think up what this should look like. Do you, do you want to pitch working at, at Open OpenAI specifically? I guess uh, while, while we're here, uh, what, what would you say to someone who's listening who's, who's thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should like plan to plan to work at OpenAI in future? So if you're interested in making sure that AI goes well, and you roughly subscribe to the you know simplified model I gave before of like figure out the right thing to do and get people to do it, I think OpenAI is a somewhat unique organization in that it is large enough to be significant in the AI technical world and it has enough credibility to uh, to take actions that people actually notice and and debate but it's not so large as to be unsteerable and uninfluenceable so it's a place where you can have an actual impact on the norms in the AI community. I think it's also like an extremely kind of uh, mission-driven organization and so one thing I'd recommend that people do is kind of you know, take a look at the charter, for example, and if these are the sorts of values that uh, they agree with, then I think this can be like a really excellent place to work. So if people have questions about this, they can also reach out um, to learn more. So you, you might have seen, uh, I think a week or two ago, we released this uh, fairly lengthy article about uh, US uh, AI policy careers uh, written by uh, Neil Bauman, which I think uh, probably several of you have like either read or edited or, or commented on. Did you have any any reactions to that that you want to share? Anything that you, that you think it got uh, that, that's particularly important for people to note from it or that, where, where it might have gone wrong? I basically agreed with the high-level point that it could have very high expected utility, but it could also be a you know disaster and a huge waste of time. So I think people should you know be very mindful of you know their comparative advantage and timing and so forth if they're thinking about going into government because there's a pretty good chance of no impact, but also potentially some chance of huge impact. I think from my point of view, it may underestimate the value of being highly skilled in very specific government domains like defense. I, I didn't see quite as much discussion in there specifically specifically obvious. And I guess I'd just like to emphasize that defense and intelligence are an area where like government will be doing stuff around AI. It's an area where a lot of concerns from the AI research community sort of center on. But it's also an area where you're working in an environment that has underinvested in technology for many years and is determined to race to close that gap, which actually means that there's a lot of opportunity for AI policy people to go and be advocates for safety or for coordination or other things that these organizations might not consider. And I'd just like to say there should be more emphasis in the community on working on that, no matter how much it may conflict with the personal, moral, or ethical values of people who may be making that choice. One of the things that uh, quite a few people have emphasized to us is the, the importance of developing like a, a, a network of people who are kind of experts in the area of, of policy and perhaps building a network in, in DC specifically if you want to actually like get your ideas uh, implemented. Do any of you have any comments on that, on, on how you might might uh, meet the relevant people uh, and like the, the, the importance of uh, having credibility and a, good, and a good reputation and knowing people one-on-one? I've met quite a substantial amount of people in policy, not through my OpenAI affiliation, but through the fact that they subscribe to my newsletter. And they have invited me in because of the newsletter, which is interesting because it sort of suggests that they have found that sufficiently useful, that it's transferred some credibility to me as the, as the main author of it. And that's allowed me to get in. Um, and it's also increased my belief that just producing stuff designed to be useful for your target audience, in this case, policy people, is a really good action to take to let you get evidence about this and know how how to meet and who to meet. I think that if you're being introduced to people in policy land, it's very helpful to have a good title or a qualification 
or an institutional affiliation. So that sort of goes through the phases of career maturity. Like if you're established, you'll have like a good sort of job title. If you're really, 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 really smart and good at like school, you might have a really good PhD or a really, really amazing degree. But the other thing you can do is go and get an affiliation with a think tank or with an institution that grants you that sort of imprint of legitimacy and lets you get in a room. And those are easier to get than the others and just frequently require you to show interest and aptitude in the area. Yeah, so one thing that can hold people back from wanting to enter an area is uh, like not knowing what what nearby career opportunities are available if it, if it doesn't work out and perhaps not being sure like what they can go to do afterwards if, if they decide to, to leave the area. Do any of you have any comments on that on like how risky a career move it is to, to, to be doing what you're doing? Uh, like both in terms of like yeah, what, what you could do instead if you don't like it and what you could do afterwards? Well, yeah. So first, I, I think it's not clear, you know, what the sort of best choice, you know, dream job should be for a particular person. So, you know, I think it's not clear that these are going to be super acute trade-offs where there's like, you know, one unreachable job and none of the others are any good. So that's one sort of axis is like, you know, what's the tier, you know, which might be the wrong way of thinking about it. But let's say there's like, you know, top tier jobs, one way in which, you know, a an effort to, you know, reach those top tier jobs could fail gracefully is if you end up getting to the mid tier or the bottom tier jobs. But I think that's, again, sort of a misleading way of thinking about it because the tiers are not super clear and there are different functional roles that people can play. Um, and, you know, the best, most impactful thing for one person could be at a different organization than at another person. So I think it's less obvious to me what, you know, the sort of, you know, default pathways and sort of escape plans should be for different people. I think it's more uh, dependent on the particular skills and interests of the person and you know what, what their opportunity costs are and sort of what, you know, how they think of these tiers. Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because it's going to vary so much from person to person. I think in general you're going to like learn a lot getting into a field like this. And often that's like extremely useful. Even if you end up moving on to other things, you'll just have acquired this like really excellent skill set. But for some people like that might not be sufficient to like outweigh uh, the risks depending on like what career path they're on. I think I'm generally encouraging of people to be risk neutral when it comes to their careers. Cause at least in my case, I think um, it's very easy just to be very risk averse, but take into account all of the information you have about your own personal circumstances. Ideally, this shouldn't be risky because it should be the case that people who work in this area like gain a huge amount of information that is just like extremely valuable regardless of what they go on to do. But a lot of people are going to have better information about their own circumstances and how true that is for them. As someone who kind of closely observed the, the cloud computing boom and the big data boom, which at least in the technology industry were kind of huge deals that involved billions and billions of dollars in spending just changing to radically different things. Those have their own issues at the time, like to go and do cloud computing was to run against all of the received wisdom about how to make things secure and high performant. And yet, people did it. And it seems to have mostly been good for them, because they got to work in a controversial, rapidly growing sector of technology, as Amanda said, gained huge amounts of information about it. And then they have a skill set which in, which basically implies they're good at adapting to rapid change, which seems just like a general skill to have in the world and which the world values. So my belief is that if you get into it and you spend at least a year or two doing stuff, especially near a technical organization, it should just kind of improve your CV 
and in the worst case, mildly improve it. If someone was choosing between working at OpenAI and going to work in the in the U.S. government in some form, uh, what would you what would you say to them to to help them decide? I think somewhat self-destructively, I'd mostly encourage them to go into the U.S. government, and that's because one of the things to think about is you know OpenAI has a reasonable level of alignment as an organization around big hard decisions already, which makes what we do as the policy team uh, both gives us more latitude about what we do and also means some of the challenges have been dealt with and lets us think about the hard problems. US government doesn't have this. US government doesn't have alignment. It has doesn't really have opinions. It has a very low level of knowledge in general about this. And one thing that all AI research organizations are looking for is more people in government that they can go and interact with where they don't have to do quite as much translation. So I think my belief is that if we had more people inside the US government, hundreds more, you would have a dramatic effect on the ability for us to be sort of effective. Yeah, what's uh, what's enjoyable about uh, what you will do and uh, what is what is not enjoyable about it? One thing I like about my job is that there's a mix of sort of exploration and exploitation that sometimes I just, you know, think about big stuff and read semi-related books and other times it's like, you know, coordination meeting on, you know, the upcoming language release or, you know, responding to people's comments on Twitter about, you know, whether we should have published this thing. And I think it's good to have that mix. And uh, another thing I like about OpenAI is sort of being close to the cutting edge and, you know, not doing it myself in terms of, you know, you know, going back to the contributory thing. I'm not trying to, like, push the state of the art of AI, but I, you know, get earlier access to some of the best systems and, you know, for example, got to interact with the GPT-2 system a lot over the past few months and produce some of the samples that are in the blog post. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I think the thing that I find fun is being able to do research uh, that you can have this visceral sense of it's doing something good in the world. So feeling like you're producing something that might actually have an impact that's positive and also exploring the ways in which it might be positive or the things that you can do on the basis of it. You know, with previous research, I think it can be really hard to go through that process without feeling like it's going to have any impact or going to kind of push things forward. That's really exciting and really fun. Being at the cutting edge of technical research is extremely exciting. It's lovely having people around who are just willing to like give you their time and help you and talk through uh, questions that you have. The research itself is quite hard. And I think that you have to be thinking about lots of different things and lots of different variables and lots of different scenarios in a way that with some traditional research questions, you don't. You have to try and develop a really good model of lots of different agents and lots of different organizations. I think that can be tricky. I also think that with respect to something that was asked before, it can be the case that you don't want to have a bad impact. And I think there is something a bit more stressful about going into a field where you feel like if you did something badly, it could actually have a negative impact versus a field where you're like, well, even if I do my job really terribly, it will basically have zero impact on the world. You know, that is a transition and that is like tricky. And, you know, some people will find it like quite difficult. I'd say some of the not fun stuff is that policy by nature involves controversial or difficult conversations and I think that you need to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to get into conversations where people express a lot of felt emotions you know and I'll you know frankly this is going to be happening today and has been happening during this conversation where we as an organization have taken a decision about publication with respect to one of our results and it's elicited a lot of opinions from people and some of these people are expressing the emotions they feel 
along with her opinions, which are all valid. And our job is to like respond to those people's valid feelings and talk about our our position. But on a personal level, I can find that to be a bit draining or a bit of a downer sometimes because you're just you know people are like super mad because you've done a thing and you're gonna you're gonna absorb that. The other the other kind of not fun thing is, and and maybe I've done this quite a lot is ultimately when you really believe something is correct in policy you you may need to go and get the rest of the org to believe that and that's going to require you to advocate for a position that other people may not have considered and so you have to be willing to go and do that side of things as well you know policy partially because it's qualitative in a technical organization you're going to need to work hard to make it seem like a reasonable input to the decision making of people who are primarily quantitative in their world model and again that is something you need to be willing to invest time into doing it's very satisfying when it works and frequently it does but it's a thing as for stuff that's fun i mean you know where else do you get to work on something that is is kind of a telescope in into the future of computation being able to compute has has kind of changed civilization in multiple times in just a few decades and being able to work at an organization where you don't just know what the state of the art is, but you have a suggestion as to what the future milestone results might be, I think gives you a pretty cool calibration as to what the whole future of existence is going to look like, which I personally find fun. Uh, Jack, I, I, I ran across your LinkedIn profile in prep for this interview, and I noticed that you're, in, in the area where it has description, it just says things are going to get weird. Chris Snow, uh, what, what are you driving at with that? The first time I wrote that description was when I was obsessed with the idea that we would move to photonics for a lot of on-chip communication. And that's actually starting to happen now. And then the second time, because, you know, you update LinkedIn and you choose whether to keep things in. The second time I wrote it was when I was really convinced that we were about to get memristers, um, which, which was wrong. And then I think the third time I updated it, it was because I was convinced we were going to get really big cloud computing installations, which I think was true. And then I kept it again when I started to think about AI, because I have this bet on AI. What I mean is that, that there's this sort of, you know, East Asian kind of curse of may you live in interesting times. And I mean, a sort of cheerful variant of this of things are going to get weird is a statement of fact about the world. And it's also a suggestion that we should be willing to consider ideas that might seem crazy or might seem weird in other times but maybe they're relevant now a surprising amount of discussion in this area seems seems to happen via twitter there's a lot, yeah. lot of back and forth and but two, two of you at least have been uh, tweeting away during this con- during this conversation i guess reacting to people's reactions to, to what you just posted today i think uh miles you, i think you have two satirical accounts uh, related to, to your twitter account uh, one is brundage bot and an ml based imitation satirical. So one is satirical, that's bored Miles Brundage, and it's <laughs> from a friend. Brundage bot is a Twitter bot that is based on a neural network that's based on my tweets uh, that tries to predict which papers I'll tweet. And it's actually a useful utility because I don't have time to be as thorough as I used to be. And I guess, uh, Jack, you, you took quite a lot, and I guess this is another way that someone can become kind of... Uh, can, can gain control over people's uh, attention by uh, p- providing a useful service and then then you also get to inject your opinions mm-hmm. in there. I guess a little bit like running a podcast, I suppose. But yeah, h- how valuable do you think it might be potentially for uh, our, our listeners to like, get Twitter accounts and engage in policy discourse uh, in, in this way? And perhaps Amanda, do you, do you have any comment on, on why you don't spend uh, hours every day on Twitter? I mean, I'm comfortable with the fact that it's hacked my brain. Let's be clear about that. I think it is useful for people to at least 
follow along on what people are saying because an uncommonly large amount of the primary technical researchers use Twitter to announce results, talk to each other and exchange ideas. And I think if you better understand how those people kind of talk and how they think and what they feel, you're going to have an easier time having conversations where you sound like a person from the same community as them, rather than someone coming in from outside and and sort of offering opinions that they may not feel are valid. And in defense of myself. So I think interestingly, uh, when you said that, my first thought was like, yeah, I guess the problem is that these things just haven't hacked my brain yet. So like with the reason I don't like, I'm not more active on like Twitter or Facebook or other things, it's just kind of like I don't think about them. And I think I compartmentalize a lot of things in my life. So like I might be inclined to, you know, if, if Twitter were just a nice thing that I could check the latest results on, like once on a Friday, that would be perfect for me. Like that's what I want. I want to not have to think about it for the rest of the week when I'm doing other things. Your version of Twitter is a magazine. Yes, or, or just like looking at archive updates like <laughs> once a week or something. Um, and then it's just kind of like, well, you know, I could send out this one tweet. But yeah, so I don't know. I'm just like, maybe um, I'm a good test case for social media. Um, they can try and try and do better or something. Uh, well, the organization is uh, OpenAI and my guests today have been Amanda, Miles and Jack. Uh, thanks, thanks for all joining and uh, doing this experimental four-person episode. Thanks very much for letting us do this quad app. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. All right. For some reactions to all of that, I've got Neil Bauman, our AI policy specialist, and Michelle Hutchinson, our head of advising. How are you, how are you doing, guys? Great, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, while that episode was being recorded, the guests were freaking out a little bit about the reaction that people were having on Twitter to OpenAI's release of GPT-2, uh, their kind of language producing algorithm. And I guess in particular, their uh, decision not to release the uh, source code. Hey listeners, Rob here, just uh, interjecting with a quick explanation of GPT-2, which I didn't know uh, all that much about during the interview recording. Uh, it's a language model with uh, 1.5 billion parameters, which is apparently a lot. And it has a simple objective, uh, which is to predict the next word uh, given all of the previous words within some piece of text. Uh, it was trained on a data set uh, that was created by scraping content from across the internet. Uh, and in particular, they used uh, outbound links from uh, the social media site Reddit, links that received at least three karma, which is an indicator that people found the link interesting. The diversity of the data set allows the model to really create uh, quite a wide range of uh, eerily uh, human-like passages. You, you can check out the link in the show notes to uh, read a new story on the discovery of unicorns, uh, a new ending to The Lord of the Rings, uh, a rant on how bad recycling is for the world, and a speech from a reanimated JFK all written by this uh, GPT-2 model. All right, back to the chat. I've heard that uh, you guys know a little bit more about this than, than I do and, and have some opinions about it. So uh, what, what, was, what was actually going on there? And uh, um, what do you think of their decisions? Yeah, so this was a bit of a break in how this research is usually done. And people didn't necessarily all take kindly to it. So I've been looking forward actually to hearing uh, Neil's take on how this is going to affect the practice of other researchers and organizations in the field. Yeah. So what was sort of interesting as you saw this Twitter storm play out uh, across the internet over the three or four days following the release was that we saw sort of two broad themes emerging. One was a debate on this sort of openness and transparency uh, versus uh, sort of caution and safety emerging where you had on the one side, some people saying, hey, science should be open, um, results should be reproducible. And on the other, other side, sort of people saying, hey, this 
does seem maybe a little premature, but they were trying to start a conversation here. And it seems useful that we've got groups experimenting with what do you do when you have a powerful technology and you don't want to release it fully blown into the public. Um, So that was sort of one side of the debate that was happening. And then the other one was just that, as you may be aware, AI uh, researchers tend to not be very happy about how AI research is portrayed in the media. And having uh, a whole bunch of headlines that say like, this algorithm was too dangerous to release, um, just fuels a whole bunch of sort of kind of hysterical media articles. And a bunch of people were sort of upset about this sort of fueling of, of that media narrative. And so, uh, yeah, Toby Shevlane at uh, the Future of Humanity Institute did uh, a bunch of analysis on this and sort of pulled these different themes out. And I, I think in the end, uh, people did recognize that there was uh, a use in, in doing the release the way they did. But maybe one criticism that could be leveled is that uh, they could have made it more reproducible, for example, by giving other groups access, uh, like a couple of other groups access to the full code um, and, and full data so that they could other groups could try and reproduce it um, so that we don't have this sort of problem of, of reproducibility, which is such a, a common thing that people try and strive for in science. I guess just to me, naively, I don't understand why you would expect that an organization, if they came up with this like very complicated and potentially like powerful algorithm, would be expected by default to release it. You know, even if they think it's like bad for the world, even if they think that if they're very very concerned about how it might be used, you think that that's kind of like their prerogative to decide whether it's a good idea to release their own invention. But it seems like that's very much not not not, not the culture in AI research. Yeah, so I think the arguments were not making the claim that that it's not their prerogative. I think some people were arguing that what they were releasing was not that powerful. Humans have been able to write artificial text on behalf of other people or other organizations for a long time. All this does is make it easier to do it at scale. Um, So that was sort of one line of argument. And then the other line of argument being like, yes, there are reasons for not releasing things, but also we need to to respect sort of uh, reproducibility in science. And OpenAI didn't go far enough to uh, respect the importance of, of reproducibility in science by making this reproducible by other groups. I heard from uh, some people that this was thought to maybe be a bit of a PR stunt, which maybe uh, follows from your first point that this isn't that novel. But it seems pretty surprising as a way of getting PR to release a thing that leads to a lot of headlines of the research we're doing is potentially really dangerous. Does that strike you as a plausible objection? I think when you have a model of people as being purely self-interested, then you like try and find the the closest plausible explanation for why you do a thing like this. And it did get a bunch more PR than it maybe would have otherwise. But yeah, I think a much more plausible alternative is that they were actually concerned about the direction these technologies are heading and wanted to start a conversation about how to do releases in cases where these technologies are more powerful and might have negative societal implications. It sounds like they expect to come up with algorithms that they're more and more worried about how they might be applied. And kind of at some point, they have to draw a line and say, well, this is the point at which we're going to like say, we're not going to release the full thing and we're going to start a conversation about about the risks. And maybe they did that too early. Maybe they should have waited until they had a a more dangerous looking algorithm. But I guess that, yeah, they they decided where they did. Yeah. I mean, personally, I thought it was it was a reasonable point in time to to start the conversation. I personally was pretty shocked and surprised by the human-like quality of the text these algorithms are producing. Yeah, me too. It's uncanny. Yeah. For example, Amanda Askell wrote a uh, two-paragraph Facebook post announcing the results. And I didn't notice, but the entire second paragraph was generated by the algorithm. And it was only when someone pointed this out to me that that I actually realized that this was just a whole bunch of algorithmically generated text that Amanda had just slipped into a Facebook post without me realizing. 
So how do you think this is actually going to affect other organizations doing similar things? Because on the one hand, it seems like they've really led the way and makes it possible for other groups to follow suit. And then on the other hand, they have this Twitter backlash, which could easily make other organizations worried about doing the same thing. I don't know for sure. My hope is that they've slightly stretched the Everton window and it's going to be easier for groups like, say, Microsoft, who are worried about their facial recognition technologies. My hope is it's going to be easier to have those sorts of conversations out in the open now that OpenAI have sort of like started that conversation and stretched the Everton window. What's the reason that scientists value reproducibility in, in this case so much? Is it that they're worried that the results might be fabricated or... Because it's not as if you're doing a lab experiment where like, oh, maybe you messed it up and got the wrong result. Presumably, if it's able to spit out this text, it's like either you're defrauding them or it kind of did. I guess, I guess possibly you could have chosen really bad examples where it's able to perform much more easily. And, and you want to give it, you want to like test it on a wider range of situations. Yeah. So a lot of the examples used in the release were cherry picked. I see. And um, OpenAI sort of recognized this. Uh, but they also wanted to sort of demonstrate the power of their system. And so I thought it was sort of reasonable to have done. In each case, they they tell you how many examples they had to go through before they found one that was as good as the one that they published. And so you might sort of worry about this sort of cherry picky nature of it. But a second thing is just like science is built on reproducibility, the idea that other groups and other people are going to be able to take this result and then build the next brick on top of it. And so if you can't take this result and sort of build the next brick on it, then you sort of have to go back to to do that work all over again, um, which sort of slows down the progress of science. I, I can understand that point that it's uh, if you're forcing other people to reinvent the wheel, it's going to slow things down a lot. I guess there's like a difference, I think, between like having the open data where you like release all of the results and have and like releasing the technology itself. Uh, like if you're trying to make a claim about what, what actually works, then then you should have to like release all the data that would allow someone to prove it or not. I suppose but you're, you're saying if you can't, that, I mean, you need replication in those instances. You need other people to be able to do the experiment again. And in this case, they're potentially denying them the ability to do that. So yeah, perhaps it could be that this algorithm is much less power- powerful than, than they're portraying. So it seems like they, they could have had a middle ground where they say, well, you send us like a bit of text and we'll, we'll tell you what it spits out. Yeah, did you but, know if they did that? So they did that with certain people. So for example, certain media outlets got access to uh, the model in, in that sort of input-output context. But I think the worry about releasing that to the entire world in the way that, say, Google did for Deep Dream is that you could see people using using it for malicious uses with that sort of level of release. And so I think that's why they didn't want to do a public release of uh, a sort of interface that let people put in text and see what the system generated. Uh, so, uh, Neil, what did you think of uh, Jack Clark's criticism that your article doesn't uh, have much to say about kind of defense and, and intelligence careers? So I basically agree with Jack that in the US AI policy context, really a lot of the ballgame is in the sort of national security context. And that's where we're going to see a lot of sort of precedent and use of these technologies and where I think policy is going to be worked out on a bunch of these issues. And so I'm really excited to see people going into those areas and and sort of focusing in that domain. And I think this is actually in some ways different from how it works in other countries. So, for example, in the UK, the Ministry of Defense is, has less power in government as a whole. It has a smaller budget, uh, less of a mandate. And so you see these conversations happening more in say, the government office for science or the cabinet office and places like that, 
Uh, and so in the UK, it seems more reasonable for people to be skilling up in, say, emerging tech policy. Whereas in the US context, I'm really excited to see people doubling down on these uh, national security contexts and national security applications of AI. So uh, one of the things that uh, that Jack said that surprised me was that uh, he's more excited, it sounded like, to, to have people go and work in government in, in the executive branch or something like that than, than to have them come and work at, at OpenAI, which was pro- probably not what I expected him to say. Do you, do you agree with that? And, and what, what do you think of, uh, of the reasoning? Yeah, I, I thought Jack made this interesting argument about how OpenAI has a lot of people in it that are thinking very long term about the um, societal implications of AI, whereas in government, sort of by ne- by the nature of the election cycle and and the pressures on policymakers, there's less space for long termist thinking. And so having people that are thinking about AI from a long term perspective uh, go into government is is like a real opportunity to have a positive impact in the world. Um, and so I kind of agree with Jack on that that. On the margin, I think like a lot more people should be going into government and thinking about AI from a long-term perspective than is currently happening. There's also just so many more roles here than there is at the very few nonprofits that work in this area. And one of the reasons why it might seem less clear that 80,000 Hours is really positive about this is that it's harder for us to be able to properly map the space than it is for some of these smaller organizations. But that doesn't mean that we're not uh, actually just really excited for people to go into a whole bunch of these uh, different areas. And in fact, feel that it has great information value for other people who uh, are potentially thinking along similar lines. Yeah, so one of the things we've been trying to do on the 80,000 hours job board is to put up a lot more um, policy-related roles. And um, these are both roles that will like to have a lot of impact right now. Um, for example, in roles at the uh, Center on Security and Emerging Technology, which has just been set up at Georgetown, but also roles that allow you to build uh, career capital and advance to more senior policy roles in the future. So uh, do do go to the job board and check out the whole host of policy roles that we've been recently putting on there. Yeah, the, the, the jobs on there are very exciting. Uh, I guess like often quite senior positions. I imagine some people might look at them and think, oh, well, I really need to be focusing on the, on this career capital stage. Like, how do I get my foot in the door? How do I build myself up to, to, to be capable of getting those roles? Uh, do, do you guys have anything to, to add on that? Yeah, I think you're right that a lot of the uh, jobs on the job board are going to be hard for more junior people to get and that often the first step in this process is going to look like getting a further degree, say a, a master's or even a PhD in any of a number of different fields. So it might be law, international relations, could be a master's in security studies, like you can do at Georgetown or Johns Hopkins, um, or public policy, um, could even uh, be doing a master's or PhD in machine learning if you really want to go into AI policy. Yeah, what, what these masters can do is set you up really well for a sort of entry level policy role. So some of the best routes in we think are um, the Presidential Management Fellowship, if you have uh, a master's degree or if you have a PhD then um, in a STEM subject, then the AAAS fellowship is, is, is really a, an extraordinary way to go right into the heart of government and be dealing with issues that are sort of important and topical right from day one. There's also places uh, like Tech Congress that allow people with, say, three to five years of experience in big tech companies to go into Congress and apply their expertise there as well as a whole host of sort of other opportunities that you can check out on the job board. I think one of the things to remember about these kinds of roles is that often they're pretty difficult to get. You're going to have to start probably by um, doing internships, by doing a lot of networking. So one benefit of going to somewhere like Georgetown for your master's is that you'll be uh, in D.C. already and so be able to meet a lot of useful people. Um, And so this is going to look like making quite a lot of applications, trying to talk to a lot of people. But we ultimately think that it's 
were you worth it? A bit of, bit of career advice that uh, that Jack gave that I'm very sympathetic to and that, that I guess I did uh, earlier in my career was just trying to uh, write content that's of interest to the, to the people that you're interested in working with in future. Do you have any ideas about, about how, to, how to actually go, go, go about that in, in, in practice, kind of focusing on, on this particular audience? Yeah, I thought that seemed like a really great piece of advice from Jack, but I can imagine it seeming quite intimidating to people to immediately think of starting a newsletter. So we were thinking a bit earlier about how one could uh, start off more slowly in this and thinking that one thing that someone might want to do is just write a a one-off blog post about something that they're particularly interested in in this kind of area and start off by sharing it on uh, maybe their own feed on um, Facebook or on the Effective Altruism Forum to start getting some discussion going on it. And then if you find that that's something that you're interested in doing, you could start your own blog and then move on from there to a newsletter. One of the real skill sets here is in synthesizing the whole sort of hosepipe of information that's coming out of the AI policy world and boiling it down to something that's very digestible, not just for policymakers, but for other people uh, like me and you who are trying to get up to speed in this field and are just sort of overwhelmed by the amount of information out there. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that someone that I've been chatting to recently, John Croxton is doing is every single day, he is going and pulling together all of the AIA policy news that has happened and taking out key quotes and, and putting links to them. And this just makes it way easier for someone like me to sort of get a sense of what's been going on in the world because someone has already done this synthesis for me. And like providing that, those sorts of services to policymakers through newsletters or Google Docs, whatever it might be, is really valuable. We don't yet have, uh, as far as I know, a good DC-focused AI policy newsletter. I think that's like a thing someone could do. We don't yet have a uh, sort of Westminster Whitehall-focused AI policy newsletter. I think that would be a really interesting thing for someone to do. I think there's like a lot of opportunity for people to jump in here and uh, and sort of take on these projects. It is like a big commitment. Doing a newsletter is sort of a day a week type commitment. So you've really got to be sure that this is a thing you want to do. And you probably want to do a bunch of skilling up and learning before you dive into it. But ultimately, writing a newsletter is very much the way to get you noticed. And as Jack mentioned, he's had all sorts of meetings in DC that have been organized because of his newsletter. And I think as a sort of first step in your career, I think it's an excellent thing to do, maybe while you're at university or um, in, an, in an early job. Yeah, I agree. Do you think you have to be uh, like really on the ball or I guess quite informed already to, to say no, what, what quotes you need to pull out or like what actually is the important news here that's, that's relevant to people? Is that maybe harder than, than, it, than it at first looks? I think there's two different skills here. One is essentially just like what happened. And I think that sort of almost anyone can do. And then there's a second, much more challenging skill of what does this mean? And that's more of a skill that you'll sort of develop over time. And you can start out trying to do that and sort of bouncing ideas off of friends. And then as you become more confident that your analysis is actually good analysis, then you can start sharing it and getting feedback on it on the wider internet. And I think ultimately that that will become a real skill set. I think I'm not sure I agree with your first point that almost anyone can do the summarizing because I think actually that really what's lacking in these kinds of spaces is really easy to digest information here and so actually you do have to be pretty good at synthesizing a lot of information and then summarizing it really concisely and so it's for someone who really likes writing likes writing relatively fast and thinks pretty analytically but having said that i do think it's pretty accessible for people who have interest in those areas uh, so just quickly to finish, what was uh, most memorable about the interview? Or what, yeah, what, what stuck out from it? And um, I guess, what, what do you think, uh, what, what do you hope people might keep in mind? 
I think I was particularly interested in Miles talking about how he had changed his mind from thinking that there was um, this distinction between long-term AI safety issues and shorter-term ones to thinking that these issues are just deeply interwoven and building AI that's fundamentally safe and aiming at the things that we most care about is a better way of thinking about things. I think that's going to be uh, fairly useful to keep in mind for our coaches. Yeah, for me, one of the things that I really liked sort of was reinforced throughout the interview in a number of different places was this idea that trust building between all of the different groups involved in AI development and AI policy and even the general public is uh, essentially central to this project of ensuring that AI continues to be safe and beneficial to all of society as it becomes more and more powerful. And so thinking of this as a problem of essentially how do you build trust between groups as diverse as the Chinese government and Silicon Valley and the US Department of Defense, then sort of reframes some of these questions from feeling like real sort of abstract technical questions into questions that I find it a lot easier to relate to of just how do we get these different people to to trust each other? And even if it just starts off with with small one-on-one relationships between different people, um, that can grow into sort of larger structures of trust. And seeing this reflected in everything from sort of Miles talking about trust but verify through to these sort of ideas around um, scientific collaborations between the US and China. It's sort of this this thread of trust almost weaves through through everything that was being taught today. And I, I thought that was like a really interesting way of thinking about the problem. All right. Well, uh, thanks for making time to, to, to join this post-episode chat, guys. Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you next week.